three bald dopes and a microphone. <laughs> There's the cold open right there. <laughs> The following podcast may contain spicy adult language, sensitive topics, and dangerous ideas. If you're delicate and easily offended, you may want to tune in elsewhere. Also, maybe just take a nap. You're also more than welcome to complain directly to the management via email. If it's entertaining enough, we might even read it on the podcast and mock you mercilessly. If outrage continues for more than four hours, please consult a physician. All right, what's up, gangsters? We want to welcome you to the Sprue Cutters Union. I am joined with my compadres, Mr. Tracy Hancock. Where's the coffee? (laughs) And Mr. Chris Meddings. Hello. Hello. He's just like he's just he's just gonna be like that this morning. It's because it's my show. It's it's because it's my show. He's gonna fuck with me. That's that's what we're gonna be dealing with, folks. As you know, <laughs> uh, uh, it's sabotage. Will well, eh? none of us follow the leader very well, so. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the entire existence of this podcast, which I think is gonna be a good one. We are gonna be joined in our interview segment a little later by Mr. John Chung, and that's gonna be super cool. If you're not familiar with his work, he's the man of the. Space Shuttle Project currently, and just an all-around fantastic modeler, and and we really had a good time chatting with him, so we'll get to that in like an hour, you know, after we bullshit about lots of other shit you don't care about. So with that, uh, let's, you know, since since Chris is having a moment of relative technological clarity, <laughs> what are you doing? What are you up to? Catch us up. I got something very special this week. Yeah. I got COVID. Bum, bum, bum. Uh, largely, I, I didn't do it. I'm all right now, but I had a week of feeling really shit and just needed to sleep all the time. And, and it started the day we did our interview with John. But I didn't die. I didn't go to hospital. So other than that, it's fine. Yeah, that's gnarly. And I, you know, I know you you had it in your whole house, basically, right? Yeah, but I, I feel like now nearly everyone's had it, you know. Yeah. I'm nothing special. Most people have probably had it. A brush with the uh, with the Rona at some point. So no no modeling progress to I- I excite the listeners with. Yeah, since I got better, I've been working on uh, a Churchill Mark Seven, the new newer AFE Club uh, Churchill kit, and that's coming on really well. I'm really enjoying that. Really feel like I'm uh, back in the detailing saddle, like uh, I used to do ages ago, and it's all coming back to me. All the little things I used to add to them. And that's basically your favorite subject uh, of all, right? It was. I haven't built one for years, but because I've built so many, everyone's like, oh, that's, you know, that's your expert area. I've forgotten more than I knew, probably. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's it's like... Um, it's still the first girl you kissed. Yeah, it's first love, yeah. Well, you also, you, in addition to just, you know, tinkering around with this Churchill Mark 7, you've also taken a pretty good plunge into figure sculpting with this one too yeah i i um it's going to be like plunging down a hill out of control on ice so i uh needed a commander that looks terrified and the only way to make one was to sculpt one although i did use some really nice heads from uh hornet you know the um 
the standard in uh, military heads uh, for for mod tank modelers and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, it was good fun. Bit of a hairy one. I used uh, I started with a mannequin from um, AFE Modeler, really nice uh, ones they do with like resin two part arms and legs and stuff, just like the basic musculature that you then build over. And uh, that helped a lot because it you know helps you get the anatomy right. Uh, yeah, and I thought, fuck it, time to have a go at it. You know, do all the things, try all the stuff. You know, what putty know. did you use? Uh, I used Tamiya putty on that okay. one. Tamiya two-part epoxy. Yeah. I like it. It's quite plasticky and rubbery, and uh, it's nice to work with. Did you get any of those fancy silicone tip brushes to to mash that your folds and all that? I had some, uh, which I got from Ammo years ago when I edited uh, scale aircraft modeling. They used to send me stuff to review, and I had some, but to be honest... It was mostly some dental picks. I've got some toothpicks and hand brush handles yeah. and, and a scalpel. Do you use water, like what, like a wet brush, to tune up the surface finish and all that? You can't with that because it's not water soluble. But um, oh. it stops your tools sticking to it. It stops your tools sticking to the stuff, though. So I do dip it, dip the tools in water, dip my tool in water. <laughs> That's interesting. Just to stop so, it sticking to my sticky. So it's so it's it's. <laughs> So it's like a lot of things where it says, you know, like like it says epoxy putty, and you think you know, that it would be just like other things that say epoxy putty, but clearly not, because like with epoxy sculpt or epoxy clay from Aves, you can totally manipulate the shit out of that with water. Well, I've also been sculpting a one sixteenth figure, mm. um, uh, just a civilian one, just for fun, based on a Sardinian. Um, folk dancer from we went on holiday side dinner a few years ago and there were these guys called uh matt matones that looked really fucking cool so i thought i'll do one of them and i used uh that one i'm using uh milliput yeah milliput you can smooth with water and that's an epoxy sculpt uh you know epoxy resin so like you say you know the tamiya one's a bit weird interesting i haven't tried extra thin on it that might work on it because tamiya extra thin works on everything else tamiya ever yeah. made but I used to hate Milliput, but I'm getting getting used to it now, and I can work with it better than I used to. Good stuff, good stuff. I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm always amazed at anybody who can sculpt and make it look anything like human. And those, uh, those red, oh, I, think I won't go that far. <laughs> well, you, dude, you're doing, you're doing good. And and so is that armature that you get from AFV Club? No, sorry, not AFV Club, AFV Modeler um is that yeah. it is it posable yeah because it's like it's like the muscles on the forearm is one part okay and the muscles you know the what is it trapezium and, and uh bicep oh, what's the, the bicep bicep tricep, and tricep yeah, or whatever bi- biceps you know. and triceps that's one bit and then there's sockets on the there's an upper part of the chest with sockets on it i don't know why i'm doing heads knees and toes <laughs> shit for youtube because no one listening to this can see it but that you like put the arms in and but they've also got holes on the end of each part pre-drilled which are only like about a millimeter deep but it's a guide to get you started you drill into that and you put a bit of wire in it and then you compose it how you okay. want okay very cool and there's like there's you get a pair of boots with it so you know if you're not sculpted someone wearing boots you, you have to make your own shoot footwear uh, you get heads, and they give you like four different heads, three or four different heads, and like six different hands, three left and three right, and they give you a torso, which is a pelvis, a middle sliver bit, really, for the stomach, so that you can make him bent over if you wanted. They don't make that too big. And the chest. So three-part torso, two-part legs, 
two-part arms, hands, feet, and head. Knees and toes, knees and toes. <laughs> and uh, you wire it all together and, and pose it how you want, basically. Oh, nice. And for beginners, it's brilliant. It's perfect, you know. Mr. Mr. Parker and Mr. Neville over there at AFV Modeler just do all kinds of cool stuff. And obviously, because they're, they're, they they're, they're both... Uh, very talented model makers themselves, so they know what you know. They know what we need. So very cool. What about you, Mister Hancock? What are you up to? Um, well, I sent some, forwarded some photos of the Japanese tank and the Japanese tank Dio to someone recently, and as I was kind of looking back at them, I thought eh, that I really wasn't. I, I didn't feel like the weathering was finished. I kind of stopped at a point where I felt like a, you know, a relatively clean tank model should stop being weathered. But um, I, I don't know. There's just something that, that didn't feel finished about it. So I pulled that back out um, and I'm tightening up the weathering on that, which I'm really happy with and I'm nearly finished with. Um, and then the little Dragon Beffles Panzer Wagon, I... I got the build on that completed, threw on some rattle can Tamiya uh, red oxide primer, some hairspray, and then used Mission Models Panzer Gray. And I tried doing some hairspray chipping, but I think my application of hairspray was a little thick, uh, and it wasn't the chipping wasn't subtle at all. How'd you apply the hairspray? You know, about from the can, uh, maybe about. Arm length? But, yeah, arm's was, length. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's what he's going for. <laughs> that was why I was asking. A Hancock yeah. arm length. <laughs> but right. now I'm wondering, uh, you know, my wife manages a hair salon, so she gave me like this hairspray, which I, I think it's very good hairspray, but maybe that's the problem. Maybe the hairspray is so good that it's great for hair and shite for chipping on a model. Like maybe the you know, the inexpensive hairspray that a lot of people use, myself included, back before this new can arrived on my desk, maybe the hold on that was not as strong and it didn't create such a thick barrier. So that that could, so, be, that could be one of the problems that I was running into is that the hairspray is could, just kind of a good quality. It could be. Uh, as you can imagine, I have done a little research on what's in hairspray. <laughs> and <laughs> so just briefly, this, there's like two different kinds, basically. They all, they're all one or the other. And one of them is, as I understand it, not so much water-soluble. And the other one is basically legit, super, super thin PVA glue. That's really pretty much all it is and 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 some of them i think are sorry i just think about all these people spraying pva glue on their heads <laughs> that's it that's it and um i think some of them are blends of the two and so i can easily imagine that like if you get one that's blended more with the one that's not so water soluble maybe it doesn't work as well i don't know but that's why i've always stuck with trace may because we know that shit works you know rinaldi has tested it ad nauseum we know that shit works, and I'm not trying to do a bunch of testing on hairspray, so, you know. Which Tresemme, though? Because I got one, and I don't even know if I've got... I've, I'm told not the extra hold one. 
And he's and and Rinaldi has always said that, and I don't really know the reasons, right. but maybe it gets I got into flexible the, hold, but they do like twenty different versions. Yeah, I mean, and again, that may be getting into how it specifically is blended. Like it may have less of the water soluble stuff, but the number three fine mist medium hold, I think, is the exact one that he's always recommended, and I just buy that. And I don't, and I and I spray it into a little squirt bottle, and then I put it in my airbrush. I, you know, so. Yeah. Well, what I ended up doing was kind of, you know, sanding down, you know, feathering out the areas that I wasn't really happy with and just coming back and respraying the gray and then coming back in with a little bit of uh, doing a little acrylic chipping with the, um, the Vallejo Cavalry Brown and then some broke out the oils, a uh, little dry brush. I, I built up a lot of texture. Um, even though this is going to get a three-tone camouflage over it, and I'm not entirely certain whether I'm going to put hairspray on it before I do that, but regardless, I, I can just tell from the photos that I'm working from um, that a, there's a lot of wear and, and a real kind of a sloppy application of the, the camouflage so I do want some of that stuff to show through. And like we talked, you know, one of the things that Lester mentioned that I'm also a big proponent of is you got to tell the story of your vehicle from, from the beginning, you know, and I guarantee you whenever they hose this thing off and, and threw on the, the new camouflage, they didn't repaint it gray before they put on that camouflage. They hosed all the dirt off and then went back in and painted it. So, um, so I'm definitely looking for some of that stuff to pop through whenever I start working the the chipping and everything and the wear on the three-color camo. And I also got to give a shout-out to a, a buddy of mine in the Czech Republic, uh, Thomas Brabkle, who a couple of days ago forwarded me two new photos of this little tank. That I, as Ooh. far as, as far as I know, there was one photo in Panzer X-10, and that's it. He just forwarded me two new photos. Um, so I've got a little bit more reference to work from. And they're nice, clear photos, actually better than the ones in, in Panzer Rex 10. So uh, it gives me a really good, clear picture of the camouflage. It gives me a good, clear picture of the fact that um, they didn't disassemble the road wheels or anything. They just leaned over and, and sprayed around the tracks. So there's going to be a lot of fun with that. So that's kind of where I am. Good stuff, good stuff. Well, uh, for anybody that cares, I have been in uh, in in all about F-18 Hornet weapons land for the last couple of weeks. I think I might have mentioned last time that I finally got started uh, painting all of the little gizmos that, that are hanging off of that thing because it's fully loaded up. Every single pylon, I decided I wanted to have something on it. And honestly, that's, that's been fun. I mean, it, it's been, you know, I was kind of dreading it because like, for example, this thing has got 11 bombs and two missiles and two gas tanks and it's a shit ton of little pieces. I mean, it's, it's about 40 parts. And one thing that I'm trying to do is create local contrast by making sure that every, every separate piece has a unique t gray tone um i mean you know you can look at, at photographs of hornets and, and if you see one that's 
from, you know, back around like 2000, 2005, they're obviously, you know, pretty, pretty clean. And, and uh, you'll see them all basically be 100% light ghost gray from the bottom of the wings down to the wheels. Everything is very monochrome. And that obviously is not wrong, but it's obviously not my thing. Because when you look at photographs of those same aircraft 15 years later, everything has a different color gray. Literally everything. Uh, you know, and I love that shit. I love creating that kind of contrast. And I also got to break out my my little Franken brush, which is my um, Procon Boy PS two seventy something, where I turned it into a point two millimeter needle. Um, that was a whole exercise that I did last year. I did a video YouTube video thing on it. Um, that thing is so much Another fun. One of your rabbit holes. It was. It was. It was a rabbit hole because because <laughs> the deal is like people. You know, if, if anybody hasn't hasn't figured this out yet, I use the trigger style airbrushes because of uh, you know, as one guy out there who likes to who likes to hate on me says, I have lobster hands because of my spinal cord injury, and I can't use the standard um, uh, air, you know two two double action airbrush trigger. Uh, very well. I mean, it's a disaster. I used a Sotar for a while and it, you know, I did okay, but it was just a beat down. And I wanted a, a trigger style pistol grip airbrush with a 0.2 millimeter needle in it. And as far as I know, the only people who actually make one out of the box is Grex. And I have one. I've got the whole Grex set up that I tested a couple years ago. I've got all the different needles but I honestly like to keep that thing set up with a 0.5 millimeter needle and a fan tip in it, especially now that I have a full-size shop compressor that'll blow enough air to support a fan tip. But I don't really prefer the feel of the Grex compared to my Iwata's. And Iwata does not make a 0.2 millimeter needle. And so I uh, one of the guys in SMCG was like, hey, if you, you combine this this air cap and this needle and blah, 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 you can make, you can build a 0.2 millimeter needle Procon Boy with a trigger grip, with a pistol grip. And I did, and it's fantastic. I love it so much. Like, I just, I want to just paint stupid shit just so I have an excuse to use it. It's so much fun. And so what I've been doing on like all the pylons and the gas tanks and everything on my Hornet is spraying all those little corrosion control patches and it just makes it fun and ridiculously easy to to do stuff like that Um, and so that's actually been good fun i've been enjoying it Um, i've got uh, though now um, i've got all the uh, the missiles and bombs that have decals on them laid out and there's there's probably 40 decals that i have to apply to the weapons and that's going to be a backbreaker. So, yeah, probably probably won't enjoy that as much. But, you know, it's good detail. So, um, But uh, that's really about it for me. Um, just, you know, continuing to progress on that thing and um, using, my, using my favorite lacquer MRP paints, which maybe we're going to talk about today. I don't know. What are we going to talk about today? Uh, lacquer paints? <laughs> Um, well, I, we might as well. Might as well. Who well, knows? okay. Before we move on too much, I 
we touched a little bit on we had uh, somebody write in and ask us about brushes and we did our best to kind of guide them and over the last week of me readdressing the weathering and doing some uh hand-painted chipping i just kind of wanted to reinforce like how spending the money on a good brush is absolutely worthwhile yeah absolutely i've been using i had a couple of cheap brushes that had decent points and I thought, okay, well, I'll just carry on with these guys instead of breaking out my good brushes. And they just, they're good for certain jobs, but that's not a job they're good for. Um, the, they just don't hold their tip. They, they're just, you get what you pay for. You really do with brushes. Um, and again, these have real world applications. Like, uh, you know, if you're applying pigments or, something like that, you definitely don't need to use your, you know, your number two sable brush for that. Uh, but by the same token, if you're applying a pen wash, you don't want to use a cheap brush with a shitty no point. You want to go with your number two sable that holds its point and can really give you that fine, fine detail that you're looking for. So it's, you know, just interesting real world application, um, working with oils, you know, the cheap ones are great for if you're, you know, dry brushing a surface, if you're, if you're stamping and stippling and getting in there and then blending it out, anything that, that you're going to abuse your brush for, those cheap brushes are, are kind of made for it. Um, but man, if you want to get in there and like really do some fine tooling, you need a really good brush. You need to take care of it and you need to use it for what it's for and then put it away and use the crap brushes for everything else. And that's something we didn't really touch on. We, we gave our best recommendations, but I think, you know, it, it's probably worth mentioning. A lot of times you have to stop yourself from using the good brush that's in your hand to move on to the next thing, which maybe a shittier brush would be better for. So just be aware and try not to ruin your good brushes and, you know, keep several things on hand so that you can switch back and forth as you're doing your weathering and whatnot. They say that a bad workman blames his tools, or they say oh. that a good tool doesn't make you a good modeler. Don't, don't get me, don't get me started. Well, two two examples I got of this. When I first started airbrushing, I was airbrushing with Vallejo, and I thought I couldn't airbrush. I thought it was me. I thought it was shit at airbrushing. Then I tried Tamiya, and I discovered it wasn't me. It was the paint. And when I, for years, I wouldn't buy expensive brushes. I thought people were just like showing off buying expensive brushes. And I'm like, oh, well, blah, 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 whatever. Then I got some Series 7s. And I realized that I wasn't as bad at brush painting as I thought. That I could do eyes and things. Because I had decent brushes that would let me do it. And it's sometimes the right tool makes you, you know, allows you to be the modeler, the better modeler that you are, rather than struggling on with crap. Absolutely, that whole bad... for, the, for the detail stuff, you know. Yeah, not... yeah. Crap for crap is fine. Crap for scrubbing it and that is perfect. But for the fine stuff, get the good stuff. That whole that whole thing about a bad workman blames his tools. There's few things that set my teeth on edge quicker because it's just such condescending, presumptuous horseshit. And you know who says it is guys who are not skilled enough to discern between good tools and bad tools. 
really good craftsmen understand that there's a difference. And you just said it. A good tool is one that doesn't fight you. It doesn't make it hard for you to do the job you're trying to do. And really good craftsmen operate on that level of nuance with their tools. And so when some dipshit on the internet is like, oh, well, bad workman blames their tools. It's just, yeah, it really it really brings out the fuck you and me pretty quick. Wait, there's but, dipshits on the internet? <laughs> right? Who knew? Where'd he go? Uh, but... But the point I really wanted to make is that people, if you're not using good tools, try them because you're a better modeler than you think you are. Because once you get that good stuff, you'll be amazed at what you can do with your skill and your experience and your talent. I was just going to say, because we're going to talk about it in a few minutes, paint is definitely one of those things. I mean, I like I'm, you know, I'm like a lot of guys who came back, came back to model making after umpty many years and the first thing I saw was, oh, you can use Vallejo. They've got these squeeze bottles. It comes in all these great colors. Seems super convenient. You just squirt a few drops in your airbrush cup and off you go. And that that was a disaster. You know, I mean, because of all of the you know reasons we love to hate on acrylics. And I went through three or four different brands of paint before I even got to using Tamiya thinned with lacquer thinner. And I was like, holy shit. I'm not, I don't suck nearly as much as I thought I did. That being said, some people can't use solvents. So acrylics always has its place. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, that's, that's legit, but I'm just saying it's a perfect example of how certain tools are going to make your job easier or harder. Right. And we, you know, we always say, know your materials and getting to know your materials doesn't necessarily mean that the end result is that you're going to be able to use them better. Getting to know your materials can also mean that you're realizing these materials are not working for me. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of people out there. I, you know, I've spoken to a buddy of mine the other day. He offered to, to send me all of his mission models paints. He's like, <laughs> he's like, I'm done with them. And I thought, eh, eh. Don't send them to me. No, thanks. <laughs> send it to Mike Rinaldi. He does really well with them. Yeah, I mean, but again, there are people who get really good results with that paint. And it, But if you're struggling yeah. to make it work and it's frustrating and it's making you angry, then you need to know sort of the limitations of the material. Like, you shouldn't – you're not going to nail a nail in with a sledgehammer, right? the right tool for the job can also mean not using paint that you have to work so bloody hard to get a decent result out of. Mm-hmm. If you're struggling that hard just to paint your model, man, try another paint, try something else. Absolutely. Like, there's got to be a better way because airbrushing is not the hardest thing in the world. No, it shouldn't. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. You are a hundred percent singing my song this morning, man. I love it. But before we get away from from the brush thing too far, going back to to Mike Rinaldi, um, I was tuning into one of his live streams the other day, and he was talking about you guys know that one brush that he's like really sort of uh, uh, you know associated with that low and Cornell Ultra Round Number Two that he's talked about in so many of his books, which he straight up says is not necessarily magic. He just found it and he really liked it. And, you know, as these things go, it, it became the brush. Well, apparently they don't make it anymore, but he's uh, gotten a, a thing going with, with a company called King Art. And apparently he's working closely with them and they're, gonna, and they're doing more brushes. They're doing like at least an equivalent 
of that uh, of that ult- of that uh, number two ultra round. Uh, so just so people know, go check out King Art. I, I haven't yet. I'm going to get some. I don't know. You know, I, I assume they're good if Mike likes them. But well, I mean, there there's certainly a couple of uh, Lowen Cornell, Raphael. There's some reputable brands that if you buy a number two, number one, number zero round from them, you're getting a good brush. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I think what was special about that number two ultra round is that it's it's pretty long. Like the 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 belly of it is like half an inch long, but it comes to a super super sharp point, so it holds a lot of like if you're doing washes or whatever, it holds a lot of material, but you can still be really precise with it. Um, it's good for blending. It just you know works really well for oil paint rendering. Well, back in the mid '90s when I was living in New York, I worked for a comic book inker, and he used um, Raphael. Series seven, number twos. And that was the industry standard for people who were inking comic books. And it's, you know, it's, that's one of the reasons that that belly holds a nice amount of ink. That point is consistently sharp. Um, but that being said, those guys who do that kind of work on a daily basis, I mean, they, they burn through those brushes too. I mean, those brushes for, if you're putting a lot of work into them, like Mike probably is, I mean, they're not going to last forever. They are long lasting brushes and they're well-made, but any brush that, uh, especially if you're putting solvent into it, um, it's, it's going to break down over time. So, I mean, you should, I think you should probably, an average modeler should get close to a year out of a a really good brush. So, I mean, it's an investment. Yeah. That's, that's about what I see. Yeah, so it's an investment that you're going to have to make uh, more than once, unlike a tube of oil paint, which is probably going to last you for the rest of your modeling life. So just know going into it that you're probably going to have to reinvest that money, you know, maybe once a year. But I think, you know, if you haven't tried a really nice brush, um, then I think you should treat yourself to one and just see, you know, like Chris said, I mean, maybe the results might improve because the tool that you have in your hand is better. Absolutely. People say these brushes are are too expensive or what have you, but the majority of us have got more kits than we're going to build. Buy one less kit and get a decent brush instead. One less kit on your shelf that you're not going to get to this year versus one brush that you're definitely going to get some use out of. And I don't think I've ever paid more than maybe 15 bucks for a brush. Oh, about twenty for a series seven, and 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 you might, but even if it's twenty bucks, okay, if that thing lasts you for a couple of years, or even let's just say worst case, you destroy it in one project. If that project takes you three, four, six months, okay, so you spent what an average of eighty bucks on the kit, twenty bucks on the brush, you might have burned through. 20 or 30 bucks worth of material, you might have a total of 150 bucks in that project. You know, let's say you didn't buy a bunch of aftermarket or whatever. I mean, that's really not a lot of money to spend for three months worth of enjoyment at your hobby. Seems like a, you know, seems like So for that brush, you got a lot more enjoyment out of using it. Absolutely. And you got a lot better results from using it. It's kind of worth it. I think people get caught up in false economies, you know, and it's the whole buy once, cry once thing. Again, good craftsmen will tell you, buy 
the best tool you can afford that, you know, that you need for, for the job. And, and, uh, you know, if you, it, like we had this whole thread um, on uh, SMCG a couple of days ago about, about micrometers or calipers rather, not my, not, not mics, but calipers. And the thing, you know, it's typical SMCG. It ran to like a hundred comments of dudes talking about the subtleties of, of calipers, which honestly, unless you're a scratch builder, you don't probably need very often. I mean, they're handy for measuring drill bits and things like that. And, but even at the, even at the worst, the abuse you're going to put a set of calipers through at a model making workbench is far less than what they're going to see on daily use in a machine shop. And so there were a lot of guys who were like, oh yeah, you need to buy some Mitutoyos or some Brown and Sharps. And a set of, of Mitutoyo calipers will cost you at least a hundred bucks. I've got a pair and they're wonderful, but they don't really measure any better than a set of $20 Nikos off Amazon. And those Nikos are going to be just fine for workbench use. So, you know, use good judgment based on the job you got to do, but buy good tools. You know, you don't have to do it 100% of the time, but again, it's based on the, what you got to, you know, what you got to get done. And then paintbrushes, you're going to use your paintbrushes a lot more than you're going to use a pair of digital calipers. And also manage your expectations. You know, I, I went to this mm-hmm. dopey little uh, art supply place we have here in town because I needed a tube of burnt sienna paint. My old tube was basically dried in the tube. It was a pain. The the cap would never seat properly. So, um, and I bought two $4 brushes, a number one, a number zero, nice little point on them, but they're $4 brushes. Do I expect them to last more than one project with that point? I do not. I invested $8 in two brushes <laughs> And I could have probably yeah. saved eight bucks and, and not bought them, but I don't know. I was there and they were looking me right in the face, but I, I, I know what I'm managing my expectations of what these brushes are capable of. And it's, it's not going to be a lot. Those are the brushes that I buy to apply sprue goo or, you know, super glue kicker or whatever, you know, you just know that's a, that's a throwaway tool. Yeah. Yeah. You can get a little a package of brushes off of Amazon that look nice, and when you pull them out, they're like, ooh, nice sharp point, everything, all the bristles are very, mm. and then, you know, once you break the... Put them in water, and they go... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we had hair, it would be what humidity would do to our hair. <laughs> <laughs> right. You said something when you were talking about brushes, Tracy. Is the Series 7 thing, is that... I thought that was something specific to Windsor Newton, but is that like a type of brush? Windsor Newton Series 7 was a Kalinsky Sable brush that... Okay, but you yeah. said Raphael Series 7 or something, and I thought maybe there was like a... Anyway. I probably I misspoke. I, I mean, a... Windsor Newton, Raphael, uh, Lowell Corning, I was just talking about brands that you know what you're okay, getting. Okay, I got you. Got you, got you. Well, something I wanted to bring up, we're kind of bouncing around random, so I think this is okay. Um, I forgot to say that I finally, uh, we had some mail shenanigans between here and the UK. Tracy got his copy of issue, uh, what was it, 99 of Ming Air Modeler. You got that before Christmas, and I was waiting with bated breath because that's the one that my Warhawk was in. And I don't know what happened, but it it got intercepted, uh, lost, whatever. 
Um, and Dave and Mark were super cool about me bugging them. Hey, have you guys sent me some copies yet? And I finally got an envelope last week with a couple of copies in it. And I just want to say, dudes, I mean, you just, I, I, I made myself never look at the digital version because I wanted to see, I wanted my first view of the layout to be in person on paper. And I just want to say, you guys just... <laughs> It's it's phenomenal. I, I was blown away. I mean, I, I mean they they made they made that thing look so cool with that layout. And I just wanted to say right here that I really appreciated that. And it's uh, you know I mean honestly I feel good about myself, but that is typical of the quality that they bring to both of their magazines. And I will say it again: if you're not reading those magazines, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, I, I had some trouble with issue 120, and I'm I'm a subscriber to both uh, Air Modeler and AFV Modeler, and issue 120 of AFV Modeler just disappeared. And it had uh, David Parker's 116th scale Panzer One on the cover that he did in Panzer Gray. And he and I are on the same page when it comes to Panzer Gray. It, it, that is not a color that looks like blue jeans. It's, it's a very dark gray. <laughs> um, so I was super excited to see how he handled it. And it just got lost in the mail, and I, you know, I reached out to them, and they're like, "Yeah, okay, give it, give it another week or so," and kept bugging them and kept bugging them, and, and they, you know, when it was apparent that it was not coming uh, through the regular mail, they got a copy of of it out in the mail, and it uh, that replacement copy arrived very quickly. And again, I felt like you. I was like, "I'm sorry to bother you guys. I know you got real work to do." Like. Where's my magazine? <laughs> <laughs> but they, you know. Right. But, you know, they're running a business and, and they know I'm not just trying to get two copies of a magazine or anything dumb like that. And and they resolve that issue super quickly. So, um, and since we're talking about those guys, I, I have uh, issue 100 of Air Modeler and issue 122 of AFV Modeler. And whenever you get those, you will notice that there's a corporate sponsorship name that is no longer on the cover. That's news. That is news. Yeah. Because those guys have been attached to to Ming for a long time. Yep. So their sponsorship with Ming seems to be over. They say they're going to be working closely with them. There's, you know, nothing, nothing untowards happened. It was, I suppose, just whatever the contractual course had, had run its course. Um, but these well, things are usually done for a fixed period and maybe renewed, maybe not that kind of yeah. thing. So. Well, and and marketing budgets, marketing budgets are are always subject to change at a moment's notice, and you just have to assume that you know, like a lot of people in the world right now, maybe Ming just was like, okay, we need to kind of change our business plan a little bit. Certainly, no reflection on the job that Dave and Mark were doing for those guys. No, no, no. But I will say, well, maybe kind of job done because when when. Um... They first started sponsoring the magazine. Open. I'm not speaking out of turn, David, if you're listening. But I thought Meng was quite a small, you know, it was a new brand. It wasn't that big a thing. And now it's really well firmly established as a major, mm-hmm. certainly yeah. in armor, also in aircraft brand. You know, they've, they've done a good job promoting that, that company. Yeah, maybe that well, was... Well, uh... it seems like... 
it, it seems like everybody's building a Ming Hornet right now. I mean, I can think of yeah. four or five that are on the go at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Our buddy, our buddy, <sighs> <laughs> yeah, our buddy Darren, our, our our buddy Darren Cook over there at the Geeks Podcast is building one, and he's doing a super job of it. Looks really sharp. Um, Sam Dwyer, who has yep. been uh, uh, on the on the last couple of episodes of On the Bench, um, he's venturing over to the aircraft side. And by the way, isn't Sam on the cover of issue one twenty two of uh, of, of AFV Modeler? One twenty three. So yeah. the next one coming up. John John Murphy was on the cover of one twenty two with his sixteen uh, scale M five. Very cool. Yeah. And, and Sam's an awesome guy. He and I have been have been chatting it up on the back channel because we're both building the Hornets and we've been trading reference photos. And he's a super cool guy. We should think about getting him on here for a little Australian flavor at some point. Well, I've been trying, man. <laughs> I mean, he and I talk just about every day. And it's just he's so far ahead. Uh, it, it's really just he's in Australia. Chris is in England. We're in the U.S. The only thing keeping us from – because he's been my pick for an interview for a long time. We just have to figure out how to how to schedule it. You know, may, might have to get yeah. Sam out of bed early in the morning and feed him some coffee and <laughs> it, it can work. I mean, I'm uh I'm interviewing with on the bench this week, which uh, is not exactly news because they've posted it on their page. But I think I'm starting at something like 11 p.m. and for them it will be breakfast. I yeah. mean, if we did something like that for you guys, it would be like some hours behind me. Yeah. Six PM, something like that. It wouldn't so. it wouldn't be an issue really for us. I think the issue would be for No. For that. Come on, Sam, we do bullshit excuses. <laughs> well, no, I think we're the ones with bullshit excuses for Sam, so let's make that happen. All right then. Yeah, definitely. Talking of magazines, if I could just uh, jump in. I got the new issue of Scale Aviation from um uh Model Caston, I think is the company behind it. Uh thank you, Noah, for sending that through. Um, it's uh, March 2022, number three. Uh, should definitely um, pick this up if you can. There is an amazing. I'm going to show you guys, but I'll try and get a photo to put up on the uh, on the Facebook page. Look at that F16. Mm, that's not real. No, that's a model. Oh wow! It's pretty fucking impressive. <laughs> that's one thing. Oh, actually, that might be a model. That's, that might be real, but that's a model, and that's awesome. <laughs> well, that's but but that's one thing I've noticed because Noah's been sending them to me too, and and I also want to get him on the podcast because of that uh, yeah. J- Japan point of view. But they do a lot of that photography in that magazine where they set them up to look like they're outside in under flight, natural yeah. sunlight, and it's it's really pretty yeah. cool. It's a very cool magazine. It, once you get used to reading it backwards. <laughs> There is an amazing as well, uh, 148th Corsair in there where the guy's stressed the skin and he's done it. Uh, it's an F4U5N, so obviously a late one uh, with the with the radar thing. But um, he's done it in a really dark blue, you know, the almost black night scheme. It's just, it's 148th and I would think it was 132nd. It is absolutely phenomenal. So wait, uh, people should pick that wait, one Wait, isn't that... Is, is that the one? Is is that one forty eighth one, or is that Dugues? Uh, no, that's one forty eighth. Okay, his Dugues one thirty second Korea Corsair was in there uh, an issue or two ago. Oh, was it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good looking yeah, stuff. Yeah, this one is by uh, his name. It's a Japanese guy. I did have his name. I've misplaced it. Sorry, sir. <laughs> oh, Junior Junior Sakurai, I think. 
So plus, plus, it's like the last magazine on, on Earth where you can still get the totally politically incorrect pinup girl fold out. So that's always fun and amusing. <laughs> oh, it doesn't make still do that stuff. I know the ammo mags always had semi naked in it. I don't paint, know if, as if they, they were interested yeah. in paint. I don't know if they stopped. <laughs> it's like the stopped. least convincing thing ever. Oh, look at my model paint. You're not interested in model paint. <laughs> I don't know if they stopped doing that or not, but it is always kind of fun. But anyway, speaking of paint and having fun and using stuff, the tools that are easy. <laughs> I think that's, like I think that's silk. The, that is. Like silk that like is, butter. That is. Before, because, we, before because, we do that, let's just have a, a quick, drop a quick advert in there before we move on to paint. Oh, I see how it is. Going to fuck up my flow. All right, we got to pay the bills. Tom Annis is a man on a mission. Like all of us, he wanted the best from his models, and when he looked into his cockpits and found they were lacking definition, he fixed it. Not content with blobby dials, switches, and knobs, Tom knew we all deserved better, so he started designing the sharpest and best printed aircraft details you will find today, and making them available to the masses. But he didn't stop there. He found a way to upgrade hoses and lines with the highest quality braided materials. And he designed an extensive range of decals covering everything from instruments to placards to superb metallic lines and more. Now Anna's offers not only superb physical details, but outstanding digital files you can print at home. Tom Anna's didn't settle for mediocre detail, and neither should you. Go to Anna's.io today, that's A-N-Y-Z to start your journey into hyper detail with Tom's superb range of easy to use and outstanding products. You'd be a fool not to. Okay, so yes, I do think this is the perfect buttery smooth segue because my favorite uh, MRP is buttery smooth. And as we all know, it's lacquer. And so let's talk for a few minutes about lacquers, living that lacquered life, yo. Um, everybody knows I'm a fan. What about you guys? Are you guys using any lacquers? I use uh, Mr. Color. Nope. As opposed to Mr. Really as opposed color. to as opposed to Mr. Hobby. That is an important distinction. Yep. I thought you were about to say as opposed to uh, Mrs. What Color. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's that woman posing with the paint, isn't it? In the magazine, yes. <laughs> that's Mrs. Color. <laughs> Could be. So no no lacquers over there in the Hancock workshop. What's up with that? I don't know. Just don't use them. Just don't. Does it? Is it? A, is it an issue of of smell? Because I know that's one of the main arguments against lacquers. I mean, they're pretty stinky, and they will make you shit faced if you breathe too much of it. Yeah, and I I don't have a spray booth. Ah, very important. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a thing, you know, lacquers have a high percentage of, of VOCs, of volatile organic compounds. That's bad for you. You don't want to breathe a lot of that. Uh, and so you really do need to have a spray booth and a respirator or be working in an area that's well ventilated, you know, like your garage or whatever. But, you know, if you're going to do lacquers. But Chris, you're using uh, like you're using lacquer thinner, uh, Mr. Leveling thinner. You're using that with with some of your other materials as well, right? I do have a spray booth. Um, the only reason I've got some Mr. Color, no offense, Gunze, is that um, 
they did some Japanese colours and I wanted Japanese armour colours. So I thought I'd get some for doing that, you know, as a try out their colours because they're very well researched. Because to be honest, I just use Tamiya and I've, because it performs so well for me, I've never had a reason to get another paint line. Yeah. yeah. You know, if something works really, really well, you know. Um, but on uh, your recommendation, I tried out, uh, although I don't know if you knew me at the time, but I read you writing about it. Um, I tried out some Mr. Leveling thinner and also I got some Mr. Color thinner and, you know, tried the, their various thinners and my Tamiya sprays so much better with that stuff. It is, it is, it is a lovely combination. Absolutely. But I have a spray booth, so I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. And just, just to be clear. Uh, so let's talk about lacquer thinners for a second, because, um, they're not all the same. Uh, you can spray Tamiya, Tamiya, and let's be clear, because Tamiya also now for the last year or two has had a line of pure lacquer paint in jars, the LP series, um, like Tamiya. Well, I've got some of that. It is oh, shit hot. It's oh, really it is good. so good, so good. Like their LP eleven, so, I think is finally the uh, color out there that for anybody who needs a doped aluminum lacquer look, like for the wings of a of a Mustang. RAF high-speed silver kind of equivalent thing. That LP11 is the shit. It's so good. And when you mix it with uh, Mr. Leveling Thinner, you can get a really nice gloss out of it, straight out of the bottle. What I was going to say about the other Tamiya stuff, the lacquers, uh, sorry, not the lacquer, the the hybrid acrylic, because we talked about that, right? We talked about why yeah, we've covered that, Tamiya yeah. and Mr. Hobby and our, our, our um, hybrid hybrid acrylic thing any lacquer thinner will work with with those doesn't have to be mr leveling thinner it can be cheap hardware store lacquer thinner and just a just a as a quick 101 on lacquer thinners um, they basically are designed according to how fast you want them to flash so if you go to an auto body store where they're using lacquers which is not as much anymore um it's all about the temperature that they're working in. So if you're working on a really hot day and you and you need to slow down your lacquer thinner flash, you use a slow lacquer thinner. If you're working on a really cold day and you need to speed it up, you use a fast lacquer thinner. And then the typical just junk that you get at the hardware store is just somewhere right in the middle. And what that does is a slow lacquer thinner gives your time your paint more time to level. It, it kind of has a built-in retarder, if you will. And that's really all that Mr. Leveling Thinner is, is it's a slow lacquer thinner. It has a, a high... So what they do to, to control that is lacquer thinners all have a pretty common set of ingredients to choose from. Uh, acetone, maybe xylene, that's not, not, not super common. Um, but, but toluene can be in there. Um, butyl acetate is pretty common. There's a range of alcohols that can go in there. And what they do is they, 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 they base it off of the evaporation rate of acetone, which they say is a one. And then it's either higher or lower than one, according to how fast it evaporates. And they control the proportions to control the evaporation rate. So Mr. Leveling Thinner has a really high percentage of butyl acetate in it. That's why it's got that nice sort of sweet smell to it. And that's what makes it a slow lacquer thinner and why it performs so beautifully 
at giving you a really nice, smooth finish. I, I keep the three different Mr. Color, uh, or what are they call Mr. Hobby thinners in because of that. I've got the the rapid uh, leveling and the regular, and I tend to. A lot of people I know use MLT for everything. I don't. I I tend to use the regular one. But if I'm doing a gloss coat, or if I want a really nice, good, smooth finish, I'll use the leveling thinner. And uh, or actually, if I'm spraying really fine, I'll quite often use the leveling thinner because it's not going to flash off before it hits the hits the model. But the, if I'm working fast and I don't care about a matte surface, I'm all about the rapid thinner. Right, and like I'll use the rapid thinner when I'm doing some really delicate shading, or like if I get my Franken brush out and I'm trying to spray really small, and I don't want to get any spidering the rapid thinner can help you with that. So again, you're just using the thinner. And that's one of the wonderful things about using lacquers is you can really tune the way that the paint behaves by choosing the appropriate thinner for the for the job that you've, that you've got at hand. Uh, but yeah, like I use Mr. Leveling Thinner when I mix up my Mr. Surfacer 1500. I keep it prepped in a squirt bottle all the time so that all I have to do is dump some in my airbrush cup and go. And I want my primer to be super smooth. So, Mr. Leveling Thinner. You'd hate me. My Mr. Surfacer comes in a rattle can. I don't hate that. It, I mean, I mean, it I, works just fine from a can. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, lack, that's one thing about lacquers is because they're super forgiving in the way that they spray. A good lacquer primer out of a spray can, um, you know, and I'm not talking about the junky Krylon or, or Rust-Oleum or whatever that you really don't know what's in the can. I'm talking about a good quality spray can, um, you know, like John Bonani. Uh, he uses a lot of rattle can primers, and they work great. There's no reason not to use those. I mean, you don't have to clean your airbrush. Why wouldn't you? Um, I, you know, I don't because I have a hard time, again, with my stupid lobster hands, uh, pressing the button on a spray can. You know, okay. and you, you can get you can get those trigger things to put on the can that makes it easier, but those are pretty uncontrollable. So I tend not to use those, but there's nothing wrong with spray cans, man. I take, uh, put all my parts out and take it outside and use my rattle can Tamiya or my rattle can Mr. Surfacer and let it out gas out there and then bring it inside and let it cure overnight. The one thing that you do have to be careful of, like, like, you know, with, with the Tamiya TS lacquer sprays is that they do tend to be hotter than than yeah. than uh, normal and i don't know exactly why that is but you know you'll see guys you smell it can't you it's really like oh. yeah you will see horror stories where dudes have you know blasted a lacquer clear out of a tamia spray can or or whatever and fried their decals uh, you know because it just comes out like a fire hose so you do have to be careful with that um, because that's basically the way that a lacquer works is is the solvent there is so hot that it is able to put the resin into solution. It completely dissolves the shit out of it and 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 it's fully a drying mechanism when the when the carrier, the lacquer thinner evaporates, all you've got left is that that polymer resin that uh, is just there, left there as basically a plastic shell. And that's why you can reactivate lacquers when they're fully dry because all you're doing is using the solvent to remelt the, uh, the, the polymer in those resins. And, and that brings up a good point that I think confuses a lot of people because uh, 
Chris, over there, they're called uh, cellulose paints, right? What, lacquers? Yeah. No, they're called lacquers. Okay, well. What's a cellulose paint? Those guys. But when you buy... When you buy hardware lacquer thinners, you buy cellulose thinners. Right. Yeah. It's confusing. It's it's the way people call paint acrylic paint acrylic because of the acrylic polymer in it, mm-hmm. rather than the rather than the, the solvent. The same thing happens here with lacquer. So mm-hmm. it's considered to be a lacquer paint because of the paint, not because of the solvent. So um like Alclad, you buy cellulose thinners to thin Alclad here. Right. So so the story with that, because this can be confusing for people. Cellulose thinners are lacquer thinners. The, the The reason that they're called that is because lacquers were invented in like the 1920s. And originally the resin was an organic resin that was made from cellulose. It basically is a very close cousin of gun cotton, which is the same stuff that's in nitroglycerin. So, you know, all kinds of really cool practical uses. You can blow shit up or you can paint. Um, but but that's where the cellulose term comes from. And in the 1950s, they figured out that they could use some polymer resins as a substitute. And that's when you came up with the term synthetic lacquers. And I think, like, really the only people still using genuine cellulose lacquers much anymore are, like, the guitar uh, musical instrument makers. They feel like that it has a better sound quality, and I don't know if that's true, but everything we use is a synthetic lacquer, and you will get some confusion, because even, like, with MRP, this is the one thing that, that annoys me, and I think they have to do this as some kind of a labeling requirement. It will say acrylic lacquer on the label. And I, I just, I despise that because it creates so much confusion. Um, and I just wish that we could just do away with the term acrylic on those, on all those, on all those labels. Cause it does, it, it confuses people. Um, the, the resin that's in a lacquer like MRP may have started out with the same base chemistry, uh, uh acrylic. And I think I've said this before. It comes from from polymethyl methacrylate, which is a a plastic, and it's in a lot of shit. Um, you know, clear plastic, your wife's nails, uh, a bottle of Vallejo. It all starts with the same basic chemistry, but the resin that's in a bottle of MRP is nothing like the resin that's in a bottle of Vallejo. You know, it creates confusion, and I wish people that they could do away with that. But it may be a legal requirement. I don't know, but. Um, as far as brands go, you know, you've got MRP, which obviously I'm a, I'm a, I'm an evangelist for because it's so good straight out of the bottle and so much fun to use because it just, it sprays so predictably. I, you just almost never get any tip dry and you can mix it on the fly and tune up your colors exactly the way you want to it. For me, it just ends up being a, a more free flowing creative process. And I love that. Um, I don't have to worry much about thinning it, although I will thin it sometimes for certain situations. Um, but then you've got Mr. Color, pure lacquer. You've got the Tamiya LP stuff, which is pure lacquer. Um, AK Real Color. Now that one created some confusion for people because it started out as a hybrid um, that was basically the equivalent of Tamiya or Mr. Hobby. And then they changed it. <laughs> Didn't tell anybody. Just change it. And now AK Real Color, as far as everybody knows, is pure lacquer as well. 
um, the all clads that are not anything else <laughs> are pure lacquer. Um, I think you've got some Hataka out there that's lacquer. Any are there any other lacquers you guys can think of? What's SMS? SMS, right. Glad you mentioned that. That's that's lacquer, and those are the Australian guys that have been coming on pretty strong lately. Everybody says really good stuff about about that. It's, I mean, it's basically like, as far as I know, it's like MRP, ready to go lacquer right out of the bottle. So, yeah, I don't know that there's a lot more to say about lacquers. They're great. I love them. I think that they are the easiest to use. They're the easiest to clean out of your airbrush. They provide the most durable, hardest shell. Um, when you're done, they withstand mineral spirits. Um, you can weather right on top of them. You can decal right on top of them. And it's just, to me... They grip uh, plastic really well, they, too. They do. They etch into the plastic a little bit because, again, the, the hotness of the solvent. Um, I, I just, for me... There's nothing out there that performs as well as a good as a good lacquer or is as easy to use. And that's what I want because I want my paint to be 100% predictable and I don't want to fight that shit. Yeah, again, going back to knowing your materials and using what's easy for you. You know, your yep. your paint shouldn't be a stumbling block for your process. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yep. No, there's nothing worse than you're trying to spray a coat and then you're stopping and you're cleaning out the airbrush and you're flushing it out and you're trying to clear something out of the nozzle and then you're putting more paint in and you're mixing again and it just sucks all the joy out of modeling it really yeah does. it kills your mojo absolutely and you know like when i'm trying to do this thing that i'm doing with my with my little ming hornet where i want so many shades of gray it's just you know, that's the one time I'll mix in fifty by the chance, right? <laughs> at least, at, at least, at least fifty <sighs> in my that I. You the, just know where the article appears. That's going to be the title. Fifty uh, Shades uh, of Grey. Ex ex <laughs> exactly. That's yeah, yeah. Not not original, but fun. And of course, I'm doing all that work in my pleasure room. Um, <laughs> but it's so easy. That's, Dear listener, be glad it's not video. That's the <laughs> that's the one time that I'll mix in the cup. Um, is I'm spraying along. I, I spray one pylon and, and I use the light ghost gray straight out of the bottle. Oh, I want the next pylon to be darker. So I'm going to grab a little bit of black out of that bottle, drop it in my cup, you know, do a little back flush to mix it and keep right on moving. It's, it's just so easy and fun. And I love it. I have seen people complain about color consistency across MRP. Has that been an issue? Not, not that I've seen. Um, they like like their first uh, go at um, U.S. Army Air Force interior green was pretty comical, but they 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 listened to the market. And this is one thing also that I that 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 earns a lot of loyalty from me and other users is Renee Molnar and Martin Schneider. They're the guys for MRP. And they're hanging out in, in SMCG in particular and in other groups. And they listen. You know, a bunch of us were like, what the fuck are you doing with that interior green? And they changed it. Um, I, I know that like Darren Cook saw some inconsistency with some whites that he was using recently that uh, was, I think, was understandably pretty annoying. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, there may be some, I, I you know. 
I, I'm not going to speak for those guys, but I know Renee is is uh, basically a one man band, and uh, Paint is, you know, unless you're Rustoleum or RPM, which owns Rustoleum and Testers and all those brands, and all of it's robotic, you're going to get some variation. Uh, you know, that's the reality, and it's annoying for sure. Uh, or you can just do like me and purposefully make everything a different shape. And then you don't have that problem. <laughs> uh, for those of you who are maybe newer to the podcast, I will, you've probably heard men- mention from Will recent, you know, during the course of this conversation, SMCG. Uh, if you are not familiar with what that is, that is a Facebook group that Will is uh, one of the admins on called Scale Modelers Critique Group. Uh, and it's a good spot right. to, to yeah. sorry yeah if you if you're looking for actual honest feedback on your work that's a good place to drop it um it can be there, there's some boys in there that are they're gonna <laughs> you know they're gonna rough you up a little bit but uh it's it's great feedback um but again just yeah, for clarity it's, it's- it's a little bit of it can be a little bit of a rough crowd. I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna deny that. You know, we run it the way we run it for certain reasons. We have a lot of really serious craftsmen in there, which is great. Uh, but sometimes we have to do a little ego management. You know, yeah. great skill and and great ego sometimes go hand in hand. But we just try to have fun and keep it light and uh, keep it substantive. At you know, that's the most important thing. So, what was that you were holding up, Tracy? Well, something that I'm. My thinners and everything are right here by the desk, and I was looking through them while we were talking, and I came across the uh, the VMS thinner, uh, the airbrush thinners. Have either one of you guys used mm-hmm. them? I have not. Nope. Yeah, it's it's quite good. Um, I feel like it's a bit like compatibility wise, like Mister Levelington. Right? I feel like it works with a lot of stuff. Um, what does it smell like? Lacquer thinner. There you go. As, <laughs> as, as Tracy passes out on air. <laughs> <laughs> and that may be, that may be all it is. Uh, that's again, that's the, to me, that's the magic of lacquer thinners is because of the uh, solvent being as hot as it is. It can do, I mean, you've got guys who've experimented with doing really weird sounding shit, like reducing ammo, which is, by all accounts, a normal water-based acrylic. And there are people who have found that at least with some colors, you can thin it with Mr. Leveling Thinner. I mean, I don't know why you'd want to, but okay. you know, It's not quite... Uh, it doesn't have the same smell as the, the Tamiya Lacquer Thinner or the Mr. Color Leveling Thinner. And that's, again, going back to those variations in the proportions of uh of you know what of the ingredients what's in there and he's smelling it again i'm smelling everything now of course i'm like trying to get a whiff of this odorless mineral dinner um i'm like it doesn't smell like anything (laughs) says odorless right on the box you dumbass Well, anyway... While Tracy's having an altered state experience, (laughs) should we move on? We should move on uh, to our interview segment. Um, This is going to be good. I think we've rambled around with the random topics enough, and we should get right to it. So with that, gangsters, let's welcome Mr. John Chung. 
Hey Spruecrudders, Chris here. By now, you should all know that my favourite photo etch manufacturer is tetramodel.com from South Korea. Tetra make the best photo etch I've probably used. It's always really finely detailed, nicely etched, clean and precise with the best parts that are easy to fold and easy to use. Tetra have now added some exciting new products to their 135th and 172nd AFE lines and to their ship modelling lines. Go to tetramodel.com or ask your dealer about Tetra Model Photo Etch and Detail Upsets today. All right, gangsters, it's time for the interview segment. This is one that I think you know, a lot of you guys out there in listener land are, are really going to like. Um, a bunch of you guys, especially if you hang out in Scale Modelers Critique Group, are familiar with John Chung and his phenomenal work on his 172nd scale space shuttle that he's been building. He's lately been working on re, uh, revitalizing or rescuing from the shelf of doom a, a Hasegawa Hornet that he's been doing a lot of incredible craftsmanship on. And, uh, so we just thought this would be cool. We don't get nearly enough aircraft modelers on here, so that's also a nod to the wing thing, guys. Uh, but at any rate, welcome aboard, John Chung. How are you this morning? Thanks, thanks. Uh, well, I really appreciate the uh, the kind introduction. Uh, I'm doing well. It's uh, a little cold today, being in the middle of Canada. But yeah, all things considered, uh, doing quite well. Thank you. Yeah, I think you said when we were in the green room, you're, it's a good day to stay inside and spray lacquer. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's uh, feeling like minus 25 outside, so uh, but it's okay. Mom, good company over here. So, yeah, thanks again for having me. Yeah, I know the winter's up yeah, there. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We're a, we're a little bit uh, discombobulated this morning. We're actually recording this on a Saturday morning because... John, you have an actual real job, uh, and we want to talk a little bit about that. And I know your schedule has been challenging. Uh, so we're doing this on an off day for us because we usually record on Tuesdays. So we appreciate you being you know, flexible and, and uh, sticking with it and, and willing to, to join us here. I'd love to start uh, with talking about your job uh, because I know you are a fellow engineer, right? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Uh, I uh, am an aerospace engineer here in Canada, and uh, I work in the uh, space industry at this time. I build uh, microsatellites for uh, University of Toronto. That's where I am. And uh, yeah, I've been doing it for uh, a few years now, uh, in total about 15 years in the aerospace industry. So yeah, enjoying it. Uh, count myself quite blessed to be doing what I love. Uh, and get paid for it. You are an actual rocket scientist. Well, to be fair, I don't build a rocket, just the stuff that go on top. <laughs> <laughs> Still pretty cool, though. What what kind of satellites are they? Uh, so um, we build small space ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> stuff I can't tell you about. <laughs> uh <laughs> They're uh, micro satellites, uh, so anything that's uh, up to a couple hundred kilograms. Uh, we have them uh, for various uh, applications, Earth monitoring. We have um, 
We have RF, we have ship tracking, uh, we have miniature space telescope. So it's quite interesting to be able to build a number of different platforms for different applications. Uh, it keeps you on your toes and definitely learn a lot all the time. In your 15 years of doing this, how many payload, uh, how many payloads have you delivered into Earth orbit? So, so for myself, I've uh, I've actually been in the spacecraft industry for probably about five years cumulatively, and I probably have um, up towards a dozen spacecraft on orbit at this time. Wow, that's cool, man. That is not something everybody can say. That's, that's for sure. That's right. That's... Twelve more than most people have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you, it, it it never gets old when you have your uh, spacecraft on top of a rocket, and you know, your Saturday morning, you get up and you see SpaceX light that candle. You're just holding your breath every single time. You just make sure that it goes up smoothly and comes back down smoothly. The rocket, by that point, the spacecraft's out. That's okay, but <laughs> it never gets old. It, it's it's quite cool. That is, that's really neat. So you said you said you do design work, and you know, is you know, you and I both know that 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 could mean a lot of different things. Are you doing uh, mechanical design, you know, structural stuff? I mean, you said you're an aerospace engineer, um, so I'm curious to know what kind of design you're doing and what kind of tools you have at your disposal for that. Yeah. So uh, currently, I am uh, in mechanical systems. So part of what I do uh, is design and analysis. So in terms of CADing, uh, we use software that includes Solid Edge. Uh, we use NX. Previously, I've used uh, SolidWorks and Katia, which is quite prevalent in the aerospace mm -hmm. industry. Uh, AutoCAD before that, that was uh, prehistoric, but I did have some experience in that, both 2D and 3D AutoCAD. Uh, in addition to design work, I do analysis and some of the fancier CAD softwares like uh, NX and SolidWorks will have a analysis add-on to it where you can import your design directly into an interface that would do the analysis um, and give you all sorts of fancy colors and graphs and helps you ensure that your design is sound. Uh, further to that, uh, my company is uh, rather small uh, compared to some of the larger companies like MDA around here that build the shuttle arm. So because it is a small team environment, uh, I get to do everything, which includes um, building the spacecraft itself, testing it, uh, packing it up. And sometimes we get to go to the launch site and physically bolt it to the top of the rocket. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, sort of jack of that all trades. So cool. <laughs> yeah. That is so cool. That is so cool. And I, I can totally relate because in my engineering days, I was always trying to be a hands on engineer. You know, I, I did, you know, much less, much less uh, mission critical stuff. It was all consumer product development type things. But, you know, the chance to spend time on the injection molding plant floor. You know, go to the go to the tool and die maker to t you know to talk injection mold design and construction. I mean, that's you know where the rubber meets the road. And unfortunately, way too many engineers don't really get that hands-on experience. So that's that's super cool. Are you guys doing just the payloads, or do you also have to do like the? I mean, I imagine do, do they just go up into orbit and then get punted out uh, at the right altitude, or do you have like mechanical systems like arms that have to 
you know, operate like the arm on the space shuttle? Yeah, so we uh, we built primarily just the platform. So we call it the bus usually. And we will have um, all the necessities to make sure the spacecraft itself uh, works. So uh, power systems that includes um, the solar panels, for instance, uh, we'll have attitude determination that includes uh, GPS satellites, star trackers, and and uh, sun sensors, things of that nature. Uh, we have onboard computer that make sure that everything is working properly. And so if you can imagine uh, a, a pickup truck, so we will be the pickup truck and our customers, whoever buys the spacecraft from us, usually will have a pedal that they either build themselves uh, or have someone else build. And that would be placed into our platform. Uh, so uh, we usually don't have to worry so much about the payload side, but our bus is catered a lot towards what the mission requirements are for specific customers. That is very cool. Very cool. So uh, I, I'm, I'm, I can't help but think about this because, you know, I know we're putting a lot of stuff in orbit and I know, you know, like SpaceX, um, those guys are doing a new constellation of microsatellites for satellite-based internet, correct? And that's, yep, that's Starlink. Th- those, yeah, Starlink. And those things are going to be like shoebox-sized, right? Yeah. That's which correct. Is amazing, yeah. Which is amazing in and of itself to think that, you know, you can receive broadband internet service from a shoebox in low Earth orbit. But my question is, and I know there's a technical term for it that I can't remember right now. Um, it's, you know, that phenomenon that, that, that some of the doomsayers talk about where we get so many things in Earth orbit that they start to crash into each other and we get this chain reaction. And then, you know, we get surrounded by a cloud of space junk that's so dense that nobody can launch into it without an explosion. So is that a thing? How close are we to that happening? <laughs> well, if you ever seen the movie Wally, when uh, you know they launch out of the Earth, they push away all that space junk. We're not we're not quite there yet, thankfully. But space debris <laughs> is <laughs> becoming quite the uh, concern for everybody involved. Uh, sadly, I think everybody is still under uh, the mindset of the uh, the big sky theory, where it's so big up there that you won't have to worry about it. Uh, but interesting enough, one of my first spacecraft uh, was a, a technological demonstration mission where um, at the end of life, we deployed this massive uh, sail, essentially, that created the uh, drag. Uh, and this may be uh, counterintuitive, but uh, even at hundreds of kilometer altitude, above Earth, there are still minuscule uh, amount of atmospheric drag that affect your spacecraft. And over time, uh, that first spacecraft that I worked on will decrease in altitude enough to be burnt up in the Earth's atmosphere. So there are efforts out there to alleviate the concern of uh, space debris and space junk. It's just so hard and so expensive because it takes thousands of dollars per pound or per kilogram to put something up into space and at least that much you put something uh, into a different orbit, like a graveyard orbit 
or to bring them back down to earth. So unless there is some sort of um, business case for it, it's very hard to convince investors to spend millions of dollars to essentially take something that's useless just to bring it back down to earth. Yep, kind of like picking up trash here on on the ground. You know, nobody wants to <laughs> do it unless there's financial incentive. That's it's just the unfortunate thing. Yeah, exactly. Well, I could, uh, you know, I'm, I could, I could geek out with you on your actual job all day, but I know that uh, our listeners want to talk about model making, and I know Chris and Tracy want to get to that. So let's, you know, let's just do the usual softball question. Tell us a little bit about your history with model making, because I know you've, you know, I've picked up from some of your posts that you've been at it for a long time. I mean, I, I kind of consider you to be, you know, an OG model maker from the way back. Um, so tell us, tell us about, tell us about that. Well, thanks. Uh, so as you sh- uh, know by now, I'm Asian. <laughs> <laughs> and I was actually uh, born in Taiwan, so in Asia. And for those of you that have been to Asia, you know that models are everywhere, especially a genre like Gundam. Uh, when I was growing up, I would be able to go to any corner store, just mom and pop you know, convenience store, and there will always be a little section somewhere in there with model kits from Bandai or from some other you know, obscure Chinese uh, or Japanese or Korean makers that you can just pick up and bring home. So model is very, or was and still is, extremely accessible uh, to kids at a very young age. So I remember being um, at, at home uh, on the dining table in kindergarten and just you know, pushing parts out of through and putting them together with my fingers. Uh, so I, I started very, very young. And I think uh, a lot has to do with the environment I grew up in. And everybody built model back then. Uh, there was no video game. Uh, there was no internet. Uh, and maybe because uh, I was in Asia, uh, there was not a lot of outdoor green space for us to play softball or play soccer. So that's really what I did back then growing up. So you're, you're like a lot of us. You, you at least had your first go around with it when you were small. And was that, has that been continuous uh, ever since? Or are you like a lot of our listeners where you, you know, you were building models as a, as a kid and then you took a break to do adulting and then came back to it, you know, later in life. I thankfully continue with it. Uh, my parents have always been very encouraging to me. So ever since uh, I was a kid, as I mentioned previously, uh, I um, I dabble in initially Gundams, uh, and then I started playing with models that required glue and paint. Uh, I remember probably my first model that I painted was this one to two hundred scale monogram space shuttle kit where I went to uh, this model store in some obscure mall in Canada and I just picked up those 99 cent tester bottles, the enamel bottles, three colors, white, black, and gray. And that's all I used. That was the very first set of paint I used on a model kit. Um, And from there, I uh, got introduced to uh, actual 
model stores, dedicated model stores over here that sell brands like Tamiya, Hasegawa, Italy. Um, I got in touch with a, um, a couple local clubs here, uh, got involved with IPMS Toronto here. And yeah, it just went on from there. I never really stopped. I continued building throughout my high school, university, um, and early career stages. Of course, there were times where I slowed down a little bit here and there. But yeah, it's a hobby that's been a constant in my life. And that's, that's just been fantastic. Along the same lines, I got to meet a lot of really great model builders that I consider, uh, you know, like my idols growing up, Tony Bell. I remember being high school and seeing his work at the local hobby shop in the display case. I, I was just gobsmacked by how amazing that, that man's models were. Uh, Harvey Lowe. Uh, he's an incredible model builder uh, as well. And being in the Toronto area, I find I'm fortunate to be able to meet all these uh, gentlemen who are icons on the, in, in the model, model sphere. And they definitely inspired me quite a bit growing up. Yeah, that's very cool that you kind of seem to sort of, you know, swim in a pool with a, a bunch of big fish like that. I mean, Tony... You know, Tony is, has been an, an SMCG guy for a long time. He does fantastic work and is also, obviously, a fellow engineer. He's another aircraft guy. Now, we may even have to see if we could talk him into being on here eventually. Um, I know, Tracy, you and Chris are a lot more familiar with Harvey's work, but I know he's a fantastic yeah. fantastic model maker as, Man, as well. Man, that guy can take a box of crap and make a beautiful model out of it and in a and in short amount of time, too. He's, He's the turd whisperer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a, yeah, he's, that's a, he's that's a, a visual that I'm going to have a hard time getting rid of, but I get it. <laughs> <laughs> it would, and honestly, it would probably embarrass him to hear us uh, talk about how skilled we think he is. He, he's so humble. Oh, extremely humble. Yeah, for sure. Every time he posts something, I'm like, oh my God, Harvey, how, like, that's insane. You built this kid in a week. That nobody else can even, you know, everybody else looks in the box and they're like, hey, hey, no. And yeah, Harvey, no way. <laughs> yeah, Harvey's like, okay, I'll do it. And he'll do it in a week. And then, you know, you'll tell him how great it looks. And he's like, oh, come on, guys. You know. He lets the models do the talking. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he tends to tackle whatever he's interested in, you know. He did that, mm. uh, the Japanese engineering tank. I don't know which came first, but he did it in 135th and then decided to do it in 172nd. Scratch build. He scratched it in one seventy second. Yeah, well, they're, they're both scratch build. Yeah, yeah. He busted out a B model Mustang too, like late last year, right? Yeah, airplane. Yeah, I mean, but <laughs> but you know, I, I was I was just super impressed with the uh, with the depth, uh, you know, of of the weathering he did. I mean, he brought a lot of that armor stuff over to the aircraft side, which I obviously think is pretty cool. You know, he attempted to do some things like. You know, the hand-painted invasion stripe thing, which is a very challenging thing to pull off. And he did really well with that. I mean, he just, yeah, he's just a multifaceted model maker and does really great work. Now, John, you are primarily an aircraft guy, right? And I know you've done some Gundam stuff. Is that is that kind of always been your thing? Uh, yeah, I'm primarily an aircraft guy right now. Uh, I think the Gundam part of it, for me at this time really is just you know, the nostalgic subject that brings me back to my first love, my childhood. 
And I really, really do appreciate that because it breaks me out from my usual mold as an aircraft guy and helps me to remember that, hey, there are you know, this subset of skills that are underappreciated, I think, until recently where uh, Gunplus exploded in the West. Um, but yeah, it's uh, that's uh, always going to be something that I love to do. I did swear as a kid to never build models again after my first airplane, the Tamiya F-16, <laughs> became a disaster. I did not know model glues existed. I didn't know what water slide decals were, so I taped the whole thing together with a Home Depot grade tape. And I remember saying I would never build another model airplane, uh, and here I am. <laughs> You've definitely come a long way since then. So that that makes me wonder. You know, I mean, you've you've got a you've got a continuous attachment to these kits for a lot of years. How do you feel about the current state of kits? You know, because I know you probably, like I do, look at it in engineering terms and the way that they're designed. Uh, so uh, I'm curious how, you know, kind of how you view the state of the art in those terms. Oh, hobby's definitely dying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, to, to be completely honest, I, I think we're in the, uh, the golden era of model, model building. Uh, the, the amount of kits that are coming out, uh, the quality is just ever increasing. Uh, the selection is just getting more and more uh, diverse every single day. Uh, I, I know within the past couple years alone, I've uh, I've put away more models uh, I thought I would build uh, one day. You know, we all have models in our stashes, right? And every other day, there's just some new model coming out from some manufacturer that superseded that kit that I've always planned on doing. Uh, so as far as uh, uh, yeah, we're concerned today, I, I think we're in a very, very uh, fortunate state. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, we all remember the days when when Tamiya was not just the, the top dog, but kind of the only dog, you know, for really high quality model kits. Yeah. Oh, for high quality, I was going to say, yeah, the only dog over here was a certain red branded <laughs> one. Whose name I dare not mention. Which one's that, Chris? <laughs> Airship, Airfix. But oh, he won't mention it until you make him right, mention it. He's yeah. very happy to mention it. <laughs> then we can't. Then he, then he can't stop mentioning. It's so it. hard to prize it out of me. <laughs> but it's true, you know. And now you've got the Great Wall hobbies, the Mings. Um, the, uh, the Edwards, all these, you know, folks, especially, I mean, I really, I know it's true in armor, but I obviously see it more in aircraft because that's mostly what I pay attention to. But, um, it's, you know, those, those guys in, at, at the Tamiya offices have to be thinking, you know, the competition's getting a lot stiffer. Oh, for sure. Uh, and, uh, just to your point earlier, um, the, has to go at 48 scale F18 that I am uh, finishing right now uh, was was state of the art when I was growing up. That was the pinnacle of aircraft modeling. Uh, and looking back at it, you know, especially within the past the past five years, 
you have companies like Main coming out with their Super Hornet series. Uh, you have Kinetic coming out with their Legacy Hornet series. And the Haskell kit is just obsolete. You know, the surface detail is not really as refined. Um, it's not as easy to put together, the kit itself. The molding is just showing its age. So I really do think that we have it really, really, really well. Actually, Hasegawa have kind of, they really dropped the ball. I mean, the last good kit they made was probably the M1K2 George. And that's not so new anymore. That's no. like, what, 10 years old or something. Yeah. So it's a real shame they kind of stopped because they made some really great, especially in 132nd, they made some really great kits. And for a long time, they were it. And now they're just kind of fallen by the way, it seems. Yeah, and I wonder if part of it has to do with their shift in corporate strategy. Um, a lot of the Japanese manufacturers, I find, have a significant presence in the domestic market that we just don't see here outside of the country. Uh, if you go to Japan, there are kits of their castles, of, um, of their other buildings. Uh, there's a whole slew of kits uh, that are dedicated to genres that are not as um, uh, people are not as interested here outside of Japan. Uh, and if you just have to, uh, if you just have to look around and see companies like Tamiya, where their bread and butter is really not plastic model kits, they have a huge, huge presence in the RC industry. So uh, I'm not really surprised that Hasegawa uh, and even companies like Fujimi or Fimos are not putting their A-game in the injection molding uh, side of the business. But yeah, it really is a little disappointing. Uh, I remember growing up, uh, I would flip through the Haskell catalog and you know, I would, I would go through and every other model kit was, uh, was something that I wanted to build. Uh, they would, we hate this, but they will rebox their models you know, a thousand times with all sorts of different interesting markings. Uh, but at least they would come over new models every every six months, every year or so, and that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Fine molds still do pretty good, but they're a very small company. Yeah, for sure. What do you attribute the current, you know, wonderful state of kits to? Um, you know, uh, you've seen the whole evolution. Why do you think we're at such a great place? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, full disclosure, I know nothing about mold making or mold design, but there are certain uh, attributes of model kits that I have not seen previously, uh, at least in the, I guess, traditional modeling uh, genres. Uh, slide molding, for instance, uh, that has uh, been really, really beneficial to um, generate details that have not been previously possible. Uh, I think um, in terms of hard design uh, choices, um, companies like Tamiya have started to Im implement different ways of uh, part design that make assembly easier and cleaner. Uh, for instance, the F14 and the F4 Phantom series uh, in 48 cell that have just come out, the fading surfaces 
instead of just flat pieces that join together, there is a little lip now, and that controls the tolerancing of the parts as they come together. So I think those are very, very um, innovative in the model uh, community. Because no kids previously have done that. Um, I think and the amount of participation from social media have allowed um, the flow of uh, opinions and suggestions and ideas to go back to the manufacturer, perhaps a little bit uh, easier, if not faster. Um, and I think that definitely helped. And you see uh, that being used to good effect and sometimes not so good uh, when you start crowdsourcing models, for instance. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think the uh, ability for people to connect with each other uh, has really, really benefited the model industry. Yeah, I would think so too. I would think that the amount of just sort of visual sharing that everybody's doing at the very least can reassure uh, people, you know, in the industry manufacturers that there's still a lot of interest in this hobby and you see people producing aftermarket and people using aftermarket in a way that kind of would push the manufacturers to give you something a little more detailed in the box. Um, so that a lot of the credit for these good looking models, you know, the, the percentage of what comes out of their box is much higher. And there's got to be some uh, some rivalry between them anyway. I mean, we've seen some some shit talking on the internet. Um, no, a few where of them. <laughs> <laughs> on the internet, Facebook, Facebook to be specific. I think for me, the two big factors that have created this golden age of modeling. One is uh, is the introduction of CAD into the design process in a much higher level that it's allowed for tolerances to be much tighter, which means much better engineered kits. And that lip you're talking about maybe wasn't something they could do before because um, obviously the design goes from the screen to the milling machine and there's a lot less wobble room between the design and the actual manufacturer. Uh, and the other thing is, as I understand it, the hobby's really taken off uh, in China which has allowed a lot of companies there to build really big businesses out of it and produce a lot more kits. And that's shown a bit in terms of their, some of their, the new kits coming out. I mean, you never used to see PLA stuff or, um, or the PLN or anything like that. And now it's, there's lots of kits coming out and that's from certainly from what I've told from people that have worked with Meng, that there's a big domestic market for them. And that's, um, given a shot in the arm. Well, the CAD thing is certainly a factor. John, how long have you been doing CAD work? Well, probably, uh, probably a good 10, 10, 12 years. Yeah. So my first, my first involvement with CAD goes back to, uh, the early nineties when Autodesk, uh, had a, uh, a, a 3d extension to AutoCAD. So that was, you know, that was their 2d thing. Obviously, you know, that, and the 3d extension was a pure Boolean, almost command line, uh, environment where you could create really simple primitive shapes. You know, you could do boxes and cylinders and cones and, 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 you know, I remember discovering that and thinking that this was like, you know, because we'd all seen Tron, right? And Tron was the first 
thing where you really got to see any kind of computer graphics and that was just starting to you know become a become a, a thing and it was just like man we're, you know that's science fiction and then you know you jump uh, 10 years later and and I was working in pro engineer and you could do all the same stuff that we're seeing now like you were talking about those the way that they're designing the the, the lips um, the complexity of the assembly, Chris talking about the tolerancing. I mean, all that stuff's been possible for, you know, 20, 30 years, but it's become much easier. I mean, I can do it, you know, in my in my bedroom, on my Mac, for free on Fusion 360. And I have pretty much all the capabilities that I had in a, in a, in a, a CAD seat that, that cost $5,000 per license 20 years ago. And, and so I think sort of the democratization of that technology has definitely had an impact. Um, and uh, we are, we're seeing that, you know, proliferate out. Because I agree, the engineering, I mean, Tamiya especially. And I think that's the other thing is Tamiya has, you know, they're so vertically integrated and they've institutionalized so much of that knowledge over so many years that like you can tell that that, that, that engineering is really a part of their culture, Right. Like you, you see the progression from like for example the older Spitfire one one for the the uh, Mark Five B in one forty eighth to their new Mark One in one forty eighth. I mean that has got to be one of the best engineered model aircraft kits in history. Have you uh, have you gotten into any gotten into any of the of their newer stuff, John? Uh, I've uh, I have the new Phantom kit. 40 years ago and uh, it's just a gem uh and i echo everything you've said before uh i've uh built the 48 scale uh a 14 tomcat and yeah same thing it's just uh years away from something that they would even to me i would put out uh 10 years ago uh an example would be the 48 scale uh f16 which oh gosh must be 15 years now but uh yeah, from the way parts come together uh, to where uh, sprue gates are placed at the location of ejector pin mark, you can definitely see a shift in Tamiya's philosophy in designing model kits. And to be honest, it's, it's quite refreshing. It's almost like a light bulb got switched on somewhere and they have this strategy to wholesale improve their model kits across the line. Uh, F-14 Tomcat, the Spitfire you talked about, the P-38, uh, and now the Phantom. It's uh, it's it's quite it's quite inspiring to be honest to be a to be a modeler to be a this uh, to be in a uh, a state where you can go back to the joy of just having model come together without struggling with it. Yeah. Shake and bake is a great thing as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and he's just fun. I want to ask about something. I mean, uh, something that certainly wasn't designed in the CAD age is the space shuttle that you're working on at the moment. Yeah. I think that kit was more or less designed in the whittle it out of a lump of wood age. <laughs> so tell us about your struggles to turn that, that uh, stinky old mutt into something that resembles a real space shuttle. 
And, and just so everybody knows, that's the Ravel 172nd Space Shuttle, right? That's the Monogram 172nd scale Space Shuttle. Monogram. Monogram. So yeah. how old is that tooling? But well, the interwebs tells me everything monogram is amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'll tell you how old it is. It came across on, on the Mayflower. <laughs> <laughs> it flew it over. When was that kit released? They carved it out of Plymouth Rock. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure it was uh, first released in the late 70s. That's how old the model is. Um, yeah, so it's it was, as old as me. I, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the first flight of the Space Shuttle Columbia STS-1 was not even in the books yet when that model was available to the public. Wow. Um, yeah, and the history of the kit was, uh, I'm pretty sure uh, it would have been interesting to know, but... Um, the only two 72nd scale space shuttle models, uh, to this day on the market, uh, are the old monogram kit, which I am building and the Ravel kit, which, um, is actually the only one that's available on the market now because monogram went under, got acquired and Ravel now is only releasing their own mold. Uh, so that's, that's. Your only two choices if you want to build a 72nd scale space shuttle orbiter. Did you pick the monogram kit because it's the better of the two or it's the one you had or was it a nostalgia thing? Why did you choose the monogram one? Oh, how much time do I have? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You got plenty of time. This is actually a very personal build for me. Um, the 72nd scale monogram space shuttle, uh, has been, uh, dear to my heart, uh, because it's one of the first models I built after moving to Canada. Uh, and I think the first time I built it, uh, was, oh, nine, 10 years old, maybe. And I just fell in love with it. It was just, uh, imagine being a kid and this giant model kit shows up on the dining table, dining room table, and you would spend the next you know, few days just immersed in it. And at the end of the day, you would fly around in the living room, you know, just playing astronaut. This particular kit, the very kit I'm building right now was actually purchased by my dad for me as a birthday present. When I was oh probably 14, 15 years old, I still remember driving back from the hobby shop in the car. My dad turned to me and said, didn't you already build one? So I said, yeah, that's all I said. <laughs> uh, and ever since then, I've wanted to do it justice. You know, I wanted to be able to do it better than the first time that I've done it. Uh, I wanted to have as much detail as I can on. I wanted to be as accurate with the model as I can. Uh, make it out to be and as with all models that have great plans and hopes and expectations placed on them it just never gets touched and so he lingered uh on my on my shelf for years and years and years and 25 years later uh you know i i still had that burning desire to one day be good enough to tackle it and that's just because I know how cool the kid is and I know how much work it takes to putting all the details that I've wanted. I want to do things like scribe the tile from day one, which is an extremely daunting task. How many tiles are on that thing? Oh, 
the actual space shuttle probably around twenty five thousand. There you go. <laughs> that's what it's going to. <laughs> and, and and that's just the tiles alone. That's not counting all the thermal blankets and all the other exterior details that I have to put in uh, on top of accurizing the model. Remember, this thing was first uh, put out in nineteen seventy eight, seventy nine before the first shuttle. So there are obvious differences between this prototype design that Monogram started out with and the operational space shuttles in the later days. Um, so yeah, it came to the point when I realized that, hey, you know what? This is something that I've always wanted to do. And I'm the only person who can build this model that my dad got me. And that, that's not... Not not from a standpoint of I'm the only person who can build a good monogram and space shuttle, but I'm the only person who can build the kit that my dad gifted me and he wanted me yeah. to build it, enjoy it, and just have fun. You know, so that's when I said to myself, you know what, I'm just gonna do it and I'm just gonna do the best I can. I'm gonna enjoy it and you know, hopefully I can get it finished one day and be able to show it to my parents and no, just say thank you. No, this is this is me. This is uh, the um, this is the model modeler that you have always supported me to be growing up. This is the the engineer that you have allowed me to become. You know, so it's it's a, it's a model with very very deep personal meaning to it. And uh, to add to that, I really think I needed that. Otherwise, I think I would have lost interest just with the amount of work that I have to do yeah. with it. <laughs> it really, it really has pulled me through. Yeah, I'm always. Uh, I, I mean, I'm always saying that, like for me especially, if you don't have passion for it, you know, why bother? And uh, you know, I mean, I I feel like I fall in love with particular subjects, but I've never had that level of connection to something, and I think that's that's pretty cool and. I mean, I'm sure. So your parents are getting to watch your work in progress just like we are, right? Oh, yeah. My mom stalks my Facebook like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> She's always one of the first to like my photos every time I post them. And, you know, it's it's been very heartwarming to see uh, to see them be able to witness something that uh, you know, they've uh, they've blessed me with many years ago, come to fruition finally. That's fantastic. That's really cool. It's a a lifetime of support. It continues, you know, from the time they bought you the kit until now with every photo you post. That's great. But through your career and the fact you've ended up working in space as well, you know. Yeah. Space engineering or whatever you call it. Yeah, for sure. It's it's been very, very special personally. You can really see the crossover there too. You know, you were talking about the difference between the tiles and the thermal blankets like I feel like every time you make a post about something that I get like a graduate level education in whatever the subject is, because you're, I mean, your depth of knowledge is, is just amazing. Like I didn't even know how much of the space shuttle was basically covered in cloth. That just blew my mind. And just the level of information that you bring to the project is impressive in and of itself. Oh, thanks. It's uh, I guess that happens when you uh, spend 20, 25 years planning for a project. You know, I, I've read through every book that I could get my hands on. 
I remember being 12 years old and going to local libraries and you know, taking out the space shuttle challenger book. And the last, this was back when you had cards at the back of the book and you had to sign the card out every time you take the book out. And the last 20 entries were just me. I would just continually take the same book out. And with the advent of internet, uh, the past you know, 10, 15 years, I basically downloaded the entire archive of NASA photos of the space shuttle from each single mission. So um, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because uh, the more you know about something, the more you, at least for me, I'm afraid to muck it up. <laughs> uh, but it's it's very interesting to uh, learn about a subject uh even after having studied it for 20 years, uh, I uh, was very fortunate to be able to connect with a lady uh, who was the seamstress who sold the blankets, the thermal blankets for the exterior of this space shuttle. And she gave me uh, quite a history lesson. She even sent me a couple uh, samples of um, cloth that uh, were rejects from the batch that NASA uh, had uh, from yeah from from the day when she sold these blankets for the shuttles, so it's it's very very uh, yeah very interesting to be able to uh, learn and to meet with people uh, across uh, not just the model sphere but into the actual world where these vehicles the real subjects live. It's also really entertaining for the rest of us. When, when some clown on Facebook decides to come at you for the details, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of like it's kind of like okay, this guy has no idea what, what this guy has no idea what he just lined himself up for. Because <laughs> yeah, I I I think I I think I feel bad sometimes to uh, be be a bit of a jerk and say, Hey, just, you no, know, just wait up a little bit. You'll see what uh, I have planned. I, and to be honest, sometimes it's because, uh, the real spatial may, or any subject may actually, uh, have features that look like discrepancies in scale. Uh, and sometimes really just me not knowing what to do because I'm hacking into a 30, 40 year old model kit. And I haven't really planned out three steps ahead because there are just so many variables I have to account for. So um, to be honest, a lot of time is is also a, a waiting game for myself to to see what I would do with a model you know, weeks or months down the road. Well, and sometimes so much of it just happens on the fly. I mean, I, I mean all three of us have run into similar situations, obviously, uh, on a smaller level. But, you know, that angst that I think we all feel when we come to that point where we have to say, okay, do I really want to go further down this particular rabbit hole or am I going to have to figure out how to live with this issue? I mean, it's, right? It's it's a thing. Yeah, for sure. I, I, think, I think we're almost... Uh... Touching on the uh, the philosophy of accuracy here when it comes to oh, model absolutely. building. Absolutely, we are because no matter you know, no matter how no matter how good you are, no matter what your skill level is, there's a point that you're just not going to get past. I mean, I always laugh because 
you know, these guys are like, oh, the shape of the nose is, is wrong. Or, you know, actually, those panel lines didn't exist. But they're totally cool with a pipe in a landing gear bay that's molded as a half-round cylinder. That's right. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I... Oh, accuracy is uh, is very interesting. I I, I think it's it's well known that uh, aircraft models can sometimes be a little bit more acoustic than those <laughs> in the other genre. No, really, we have we have we, not actually. We've ever... used a different word than caustic yeah. before. Yeah. <laughs> this is a podcast. I'm trying to keep it family friendly ish. Oh, this this is not it. This You're is the not this podcast. This is not a family friendly podcast. Don't worry about that. If, if, if you don't mind, if I I have a philosophy for for accuracy that uh, I, I I I like to abide by. So on on one end of the spectrum, there is the actual subject itself. So let's say the space shuttle. On the other end of the spectrum, there is a pink dinosaur called Barney. <laughs> I like and, I like where this is going. <laughs> in, in my in my humble opinion, everybody lies somewhere on the spectrum, and nobody will ever approach and attain either end of the spectrum because it, it's just not. Not only is it physiologically impossible, you will not be able to mow a twenty thou thin skin panel on a De Havilland Beaver float plane to scale. You just will not. No, uh, if your panel line on a model kit is 0.2 of a millimeter, you're not going to scale it up to 6.4 millimeter and say that's not accurate. Because 0.2 millimeter of a panel line is pretty decent. No, it, it just looks right. It has it the correct good. width, correct depth. When you paint it, is visually appealing. So I think uh, somewhere along the spectrum, there is a balance between what is accurate and what looks just right for a model kit. And Amen. every modeler contends with that. So I, I have that in the back of my mind a lot when I build a model, which is interesting because I, I think I tend to push for accuracy a lot. But I, I, I also tell myself that, you know, this is this is really something that I need to ensure that not only does it look right at the end of the day, but I can actually achieve it. I can physically achieve it with whatever tools and materials that I have at my disposal. Well, there's also a slight difference between accuracy and detail, right? I mean, you, I think a lot of people, th those paths are parallel. But uh, by nature, one stops while the other continues. Like accuracy will continue to go and, and you will stop at the level of detail that you want to do, which is, you know, the level of accuracy that you can achieve. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. If you look at a, a single roll of panel line, let's take something as simple as that along a panel on an aircraft. Um, a real aircraft Accuracy may dictate that there are 20 rivets in that roll. But when you shrink it down to whichever scale that you prefer, it may actually look better if you have 10 rivets as opposed to 20. 
And that's what a lot of model companies do. You want to make sure that it looks visually and artistically uh, appealing to the modeler. And it's a very subjective choice, I think. And I think that's a very human choice. And that in itself cannot just be accounted for by absolute accuracy alone. Well, and some of it is just down to the pure physics of manufacturing. I mean, you're talking about the rivets. If you try to put 20 of them, that may mean that you've got a pin in the in the mold that is a smaller piece of steel than is practical. I mean, you know, you you can you can only make a a, a pin so small before it's just going to fail, and that makes your tooling more expensive, and ultimately the quality goes down. I mean, there's a ton of considerations that I think a lot of these guys just totally they 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 have no no comprehension of. It's just all about it. Does it look like the photo, or does it look like the one that I flew, or that I worked on, or whatever? And there's so many levels. Actually, I, I think you would agree with this, John. Model kit engineering, as product design engineering goes, is really pretty complex, and has a bunch of layers. That you know, if you're just designing the cover for a mouse or a cell phone or whatever, that's honestly a lot easier in a bunch of ways. Oh, for sure, a hundred percent. I mean, everybody uh, have heard of the complaint of does this person even build model when he or she is designing a certain model kit or writing the instruction uh, because it would have gone together better this way or. It would have been better if the parts were split in that other direction so that it's easier to clean up. So I think there are a lot of subjective considerations when it comes to designing a model kit than uh, something that is otherwise commercially available but is uh, sort of plug and play, for instance, like a mouse. Also, though, I don't know how easy it is to find someone who's really good at designing molds and is a modeler. That's what I was going to say. I think the odds actually are pretty slim because uh, the numbers in the in our hobby are are pretty small, and so the odds that everybody who's on the engineering team at at even Tamiya, where I feel like it's probably a higher percentage than other companies, you know, it's just not that great. I mean, when I was in the when I was in the power sports industry, the I worked for a big big distributor, and honestly. I would say maybe 20% of the people in the company were actually motorcycle people. The rest were just people who worked there because it was a good job. John, how long have you been working on the space shuttle project? Oh, it's probably uh, coming up to a year. You made a lot of progress in a year. Yeah. Oh, not enough, that's for sure. When was the last time you touched it, though? (laughs) Uh, The last time I touched it was... uh... Worked on it or touched it because I touched it about an hour ago. Work on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to clip that one bit out for the cold open. I touched it about yeah. an hour ago. <laughs> That's the cold opening right there. This is, this is where we would typically That's a level. Clip, That's typically our level. devolve. Right. We would devolve into 12-year-old dick jokes Ooh. right now. I mean, we just did, yeah, basically. Yeah. The last time you worked on it. Uh, so the last time I worked on it was about uh, a, a month or so ago. Yeah. And that's when I sort of switched to the Hornet. It's uh, something about spending essentially a year doing nothing but scribing and shooting great primer that just makes you want to throw paint at something, no anything. (laughs) So that's when I uh, dug the Hornet out and said, you know what? What's the 
dirtiest, most disgusting subject I can paint as an aircraft model. Oh, a Canadian F-18. That's great. I have one in my uh, on my shelf of doom. I'll just dig that out and fix it up and uh, and go from there. All right. So that so that's an interesting thing. I I didn't realize that that's you know that that was why you were getting into it. I thought you just really wanted to you know do something suicidal when <laughs> when I saw you <laughs> chopping that thing apart. I was like, okay, he's just not happy with scribing you know ten thousand tiles on the. On the space shuttle, he's you know just a glutton for punishment. So well, no, that's his idea of relaxation. So he's, <laughs> he's like, okay, this is this is becoming stressful. What I'm going to do is I'm going to completely rebuild and detail this kit for relaxation. Clearly, there are, Clearly. There are levels of intense. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, there are, and which makes me you know, it's it's interesting that. That that's truly probably very relaxing for him. It's it's a shift in gears that allows you to like use different muscles. But um, I'm glad you're doing it because it allows it allows people to see more of your um, sort of your vocabulary of problem solving. Like you, you've got really really good problem solving skills that are really awesome to watch. So you know when you're making the move from from scribing. And dealing with those problems to disassembling and reassembling and detailing this this uh, hornet, then it's bringing different problem solving to the front, which has been really fun and really informative uh, for me to see, and I think for other people too. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, it's uh, I, I think one example that uh, I can think of uh, is the way that uh, I joined the lower fuselage back onto the main fuselage on the hornet. Yeah. And yep, that's what I was thinking about. Speaking of glutton for punishment, I actually had that fuselage <laughs> together <laughs> before I realized that I couldn't live with uh, the lack of intakes. So I saw the fuselage apart with a, uh, a really thin <laughs> tri-tool, Haskell tri-tool saw. Uh, and I just kind of left it. And I installed the intake five years ago. I just kind of left it because I didn't know how I was going to be able to put the lower fuselage back onto the main fuselage without having to use a, 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 a huge amount of filler and sandpaper and elbow grease. So it just, it's an idea that came to me that, you know, it's sometimes it may be easier to redefine the joint along a, uh, a section that maybe the kit doesn't give you or you've screwed up. And that involves cutting away a little bit more material to add a, a a new a new piece of scratch build section that will allow you to make together that will minimize the effort down the road. So yeah, it's a uh, it's definitely uh, required uh, a bit of problem solving. But I don't think it's something that's uh, it's beyond the reach of most modelers. Definitely. <laughs> let let's make sure let. let... Let's make sure people understand, though. You had the fuselage fully assembled. You were good to go. You were at that point where you could have just said, okay, cool, nobody's going to look down these intakes. I can now proceed to paint. And you cut the thing in half just to put the intake tubes in there. Right? Right. So that's the point, right? Because anybody could do that. He did. He made the choice to do it, and then he got it where he wanted it, and then... Instead, 
what I think what everybody's instinct would be is to just glue it all back together and just deal with sanding and filling and sanding and filling. And he actually took the time to think like, okay, that, that sounds like it sucks a lot. So what kind of solution can I come up with where I don't have to fucking do that? And, you know, he, he glued some plastic on there and recontoured it to fit. And then it was almost like the kit part again, which I think that, that's fucking brilliant. And anybody could do it. But he took the time to to have that idea where the rest of us would just be still sanding and filing and cursing and not having a good time with the model. So I that's what I loved about that is like just, man, that was a really elegant solution. And it, it encourages me to like before I, you know, just go full force and, and do the dumb thing to stop and think like, is there a smarter thing to do besides the dumb thing? So, <laughs> thank you, John. You've you're, you're inspired me to be less dumb <laughs> or, uh, or attempt to be less dumb. Well, I always happy help brother out. And, and to be completely <laughs> honest, I, I think I, I, I am the way I am today because I've learned enough from my own dumb mistakes in the past. Uh, in, in as an aircraft, modeler there's always uh, that you know, that moment of anxiety when you've got everything painted and you're gonna go and glue everything together and the glue runs away or you know seep in out of uh, of the paintwork that you just completed uh so i i got to the point when i always as much as i hate it i tell myself to prepare beforehand for the assembly even if that means having to uh, send away certain uh, certain components so that they will mate properly, uh, or that paint will not get in the way, uh, but preparation, prior preparation, uh, is is pretty important. I think it'll, it'll save a lot of headache uh, headaches down the road. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I think I, I really hope that people get a chance to look at the full body of your work. Cause I know you sent us a, a link and I, I hopefully we, I, I mean, I hope we can figure out a way to share all of it because, you know, get people get really like focused on what you're doing right now because it's just so mind bending with the Hornet and with the space shuttle, but you've been doing a lot of really high level problem solving and, and scratch building and, and that sort of thing for a long time. I mean, I was just surfing through all those images and looking at some of the scratch detail work that you've done on cockpits, um, ejection, ejection seats, sculpting cushions with epoxy putty. I mean, that's just, oh, that, that's just gangster. Uh, so much of that stuff. Um, would you say that all of that is kind of like your favorite part of model making? Uh. Thanks. I appreciate the compliment. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let everyone know that I am probably by far the cheapest modeler that you can ever think of. <laughs> yeah, we've been trying to get you to buy scribing tools, and you're like, "No, I'm going to use a pin." <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's, there's a running joke uh, among uh, some of my model modeler friends in Toronto that uh, I. I would not add an ounce of resin to my model kit unless I am on my deathbed. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, me growing up, just not having the money to buy aftermarket. Uh, and I would you know, go to the store and I would see shelf to shelf. Back then was, uh, uh, oh, it was Verlinden. It was, 
I think it was KMC. Uh, Aries just came out, and I just, you know, as a kid, I couldn't afford any of that. So I thought to myself, hey, how can I detail the models that uh, I want to build for myself? Uh, so I started experimenting with uh, She Styrene, with Stretch Sprue, with Epoxy Putty. And it just kind of grew out of there. I started to appreciate it. I started to be, appreciate the ability to build something not just uh, detailed, but detailed in the way that I want to. Uh, and that may mean not as detailed as some of the aftermarkets that I uh, could could have purchased, but something that uh, is uniquely mine. You know, like it's the same as if you walk by a, a model on a contest table and you see a certain paintwork, you instantly recognize whose handiwork that is. Uh, so for me, being able to build something from scratch uh, that's uniquely my style. I find that that's quite fulfilling. So I, I do enjoy it from that respect. I think people misunderstand aftermarket as well. They think it's like something everyone should buy to make their model better. And and they even say, oh, it's overpriced or or um, you don't need it, blah, blah, blah. Aftermarket is for people that want more detail, but lack either the time, the inclination or the skill to do it themselves, but have the money. So it might be that you want, more detail to paint but what you really want to do is paint so you buy the aeros cockpit whereas if you can scratch it you've got the time to scratch it and you want to scratch it of course you should scratch it of course you should do that instead of buy the resin it's just different options for different kinds of modelers really and i bet you get a lot more fun out of scratching it than you would out of buying it and just plopping it in oh yeah for sure and it's uh it, it may sound a little perverse but i can look at a beautifully scratchable piece of model that's made out of white styrene and appreciate how clean it is and how well made and how well the uh, the edges are and the the joints are and i think that's a uh, that it's something that uh, i would i've learned to appreciate as a scratch builder yeah it's something that um i mean we we've all done a bit of it and lots of people listening have done a bit of it so we all know what i'm talking about but uh it's something until you scratch build, you don't appreciate how hard it is to do it really cleanly. To make something isn't that hard. Yeah. To make it well and to make it clean is super hard. That makes me want to ask you one of the same questions I asked Dave Parker because your your scratch work reminds me a lot of his. I mean, it's just super tight, super clean. There's no rough edges. It, it, it looks, I mean, it's just, it's just tight. I don't know any other way to say it. So for, for guys who want to do that for themselves, do you have any advice on how to get that level of tightness? Uh, get yourself a fresh box of number 11 blades. I cannot emphasize that enough. Yeah, a good, uh, good sharp blade goes a long way. And another piece of advice I would is to not just be afraid to screw it up. No, not be afraid to experiment. Uh, even different type of plastic. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that different brands of uh, white styrene behave differently. It feels different. There's different densities to it. There's different brittleness. And also, don't be afraid to use materials that uh, you may not think of using. Uh, one of my favorite materials to use is uh, flash from model kits, old model kits. 
you know, you get large pieces of flash everywhere. I cut them off. Kits. I cut them off and use them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, when when I buy an old monogram kit, the first thing I do is go in and salvage all the flash. You buy it for the flash, don't you? Because what? flash, <laughs> yeah, because flash is very, very, very thin. It's thinner than any of the white styrene you can buy. It is hard so that you can handle it better and you can manipulate it better. So it is, it is a perfect material for scratch building in some ways. That is so I, no, brilliant. Don't be afraid to experiment. Oh, no, that don't flash be afraid to away. screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> it almost makes me want to go buy some shitty kits just to get some. Oh, please do. <laughs> Come on, you don't have flash in your stash? I have flash no stash. flash in my stash. I am not interested in that shit, but I am now. But one thing I noticed that you use a lot um, is like with all of your pipe, your piping, tubing, cabling. Um, I'm a, I'm, I've, I've always been a big fan of of lead wire, but the obvious disadvantage is you got to use cyanoacrylate. You are using a lot of styrene rod, and I'm really interested in knowing how you manipulate that because obviously you can use yes. extra thin. Yeah, yeah, that's what I wanted in there too. Stretch sprue, that's what I use a lot. Uh, I prefer to use styrene as much as possible. Uh, I just find that not only do you uh, not have to use a different adhesive, uh, when you paint the parts, uh, it behaves similarly uh, under primer and paint. Uh, so I use styrene as much as I can throughout my scratch build. Um, for stretch sprue, uh, I think a lot of times people approach a certain bend, for instance, in stretch sprue with uh, a single, uh, along a, a, a single radius. So you you take the you, you take you take stretch sprue and you bend it to the radius that you want, and it snaps somewhere in between, because it's really hard to manipulate when you do it that way. But if you bend it a little bit at a time along the length of a curve, then you technically minimize the amount of stress that is localized at a certain point. It's really hard to describe sometimes without, say, the benefit of a visual. But take your uh, tweezer and bend along the sprue a little bit at a time until you reach the full radius that you desire. And you find out it's a lot easier to manipulate. Secondly, I usually bend a piece of sprue immediately after I stretch it because the molecules are still hardening at the time. It doesn't harden immediately, sort of takes time. It hardens mostly in a short amount of time after you stretch it, but it will not fully harden until a little bit later. So that allows the screw to be a little bit more pliable. I do that with um, styrene rod as well. If it's if it's warm, it's it's easier to get a sharp bend in it. If you try and just bend it, it will snap. Or if you try and bend it when it's hot and it's um, you know if you heat it so that it melts and you bend it, then um, it will get more of a curve on it. You can't get a sharp edge on it. So you have to bend it a bit and then, like you say, bend it a little bit and a little bit and a little bit as it cools down and then you can get a sharp corner on it. That's correct. It's like yeah. holding a, 
like holding a piece of spaghetti, you can bend it from the ends, but if you hold it in the middle and try to bend it, it'll snap. That's correct. Yeah, that's exactly it. I want to make sure I understand this because I think that this is this could be a light bulb moment because I think like for me my hesitation in using styrene stretched or you know evergreen rod or whatever has been getting those bends uh, because I I think you'll agree with me John that one of the things that really makes like piping and tubing look more authentic is when the runs are straight between the bends. Because that's, I mean, that's the way real mechanical tubing is done. I mean, you get a eight foot long section of it that's totally straight, and you use a tubing bender. So if it's wobbly in between the corners, it just doesn't look just doesn't look authentic. But and with lead wire, it's pretty easy because you can roll it on your bench and straighten it, and then like I'll just I glue one end in place, and then I use a, a toothpick or whatever round thing I have that's the right diameter as the form and I wrap the lead wire around the form and I move to the next corner and I do that corner. But what I hear you saying is that you're grabbing it, grabbing the styrene rod with your tweezers at the beginning of the curve and bending it just a few degrees. And then you move your tweezers and regrip and bend a few more degrees. Is that, and just keep doing that until you've basically done it enough times to get around the corner is that am i getting that right yeah that's exactly it that's exactly what i'm doing so instead of one hard pivot you've got lots of small pivots yeah i I find that much more helpful that's that's one of those like we have guys who joke about having to pull over and take notes (laughs) when they're listening this is (laughs) <laughs> this is one of those this is one of those moments and I'm going to try that because that's very different from what I just intuitively would have tried to do with styrene rod and have and have failed for the reasons that you've talked about because it just you know the it wants to snap back it, you you got to overbend it and getting it you know to the right angle is frustrating or you get it just right and then it splits <laughs> it just yeah <laughs> it just breaks I was just going to say, I've heard of people like using extra thin to soften it and doing all kinds of gyrations, but you're using a, just a very, just stone axe, simple technique that results in a much more sophisticated and, and sound way of, of, of constructing that detail. Which kind of leads into what I was going to ask, because, so Will's mentioning styrene, he said styrene rod a few times. And I know you use rod and sprue, stretch sprue. So my question is kind of following up from Will. If you're using rod, do you use something like a hairdryer or something to warm it up before you start making these bends to make it a little more pliable and less brittle? And second, with the stretch sprue, when you're stretching it, if you have an idea of where you want it to curve, do you allow it to cool in a curve uh a little bit while it's forming before you get in there and start manipulating that curve more. Thank you. I'll take my answers offline. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, first question, I generally don't use styrene rods unless I don't need to manipulate it at all. If I need a long section of continuous diameter that's consistent and I don't need to bend it, I will use styrene rod because stretch sprue is very difficult to make 
with a consistent diameter across yeah. a certain length. So I would do uh, that with siding rod only. For any sort of piping or wiring work, I will use stretch sprue uh, exclusively. And to answer your other question, uh, no, I don't, because it's just really hard to keep one section of a sprue heated uh, beyond the uh, beyond the other. Once you start stretching the sprue, that's it. There's no going back. And if you stretch it a little bit too thin and the diamond is a little too small, well, start again. Well, the good thing about yeah. sprue is, though, you've always got plenty of it. It's Just keep free. stretching it till you get what you want. <laughs> That that's exactly it. Uh, I I I actually personally have a box of old sprues and old parts. Uh, I know a lot of model builders have a uh, a little box or a little bag of just extra decals or uh, extra parts from kits. I generally keep a uh, a couple bags of just different sprues and different color sprues, uh, different plastic from different manufacturers work differently. So it depends on what application. Not all sprues are equal, are they? Some stretch better than others. Some break. You know, as soon as you think they're going to stretch, they break. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so I, I find it, I find it helpful. It's just uh, being able to uh, make use of uh, materials that we wouldn't otherwise think of using uh, definitely helped. And don't be afraid to screw that up. There's there are times when I will be trying to run a wire or two on a landing gear leg or landing gear well, and I will be stretching and bending in a half a dozen times before I get it right. And that's that's perfectly okay. Just don't be afraid to experiment. So what's your favorite what's your favorite brand of sprue to stretch? That's a very good question. My favorite brand of sprue to stretch would be from the same kit of whatever kit I am working with. Well, that makes good sense. I was going to say, don't forget to experience the joy of, like, when you stretch something far beyond where you thought you were going to be, you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> you run out of arm. It just goes through. And then you're like, it's well, still going. Yeah. Like, well. And it's so cool. And you're like, now, what can I use this for? Well, now, how can I store the rest of this shit? Yeah. Actually, I, I am going to contradict myself a little uh, from, from earlier. Uh, sometimes I found this to be a trick uh, for, for the uh, – for those of us that like to take photographs of our work in progress, it's actually nice to be able to stretch through of a slightly different color so they pop out when you take photos. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and I think it makes the work the work easier as well because you can just you visually can separate things while you're in there. Chris, you call for a timeout? No, I'm saying my favorite sprue, the big T, Tavia. It's the best oh. styrene. <laughs> Although actually, Revel's not bad as well. Well, this means time I know, out. I thought that after I did it. I thought, don't. But it's no, the big T, Tamiya. That's the best sprue. It's good. Ha- Hasegawa sprue is also pretty nice and, well, and hard. I like good that stuff pretty well. Mike McCabe gave me a good uh, tip. If you want it really thin, the best thing to do is to heat the end of it till it catches fire. Then put it out, push down on the melted end and pull. And it gets really, really thin, like hair thin. <laughs> Not that I know what hair looks like, but you know. Wait, wait, like set set the end on yeah, fire. Yeah, blow it out straight away, it... and then put down on it. Obviously, not with your finger, it... with something metal, and <laughs> pull really fast, and it gets really, oh, really thin. Stick it to stick it, stick yeah. it to something, and then pull the. Yeah. Yeah. Look, that's that's a cool story, but given what happened to you the last time you were casting, that was casting uh, white metal. Ended up, Duh. Ended I up in stuff. the hospital. I don't think you. 
I don't think you should set anything on fire. I Chris. use fire every day when I'm modelling. I'm always stretching <laughs> bits of plastic and that, or bending things. It's fine. Just no hot metal. Don't pour hot metal. He doesn't have heat in his modelling room, so he has to burn the instructions as he, <laughs> as he finishes a no, section. No, I'm a scratch builder. That's, uh, that's my ceremonial beginning to a kit, burning some instructions. <laughs> don't tell me what to do. <laughs> I'm a rebel, damn it. I've got my own way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so John, here this is this is fantastic. I, this is the this is the level of of depth that we really love uh, to get into. But I'm curious because you mentioned before that you were like, okay, what's the filthiest thing that I can build? And that is how much of my own madness starts. Um, but you know, when I look at your style, I would say that you favor a lightly weathered style. So I'm curious how you're going to approach this CF 18 and just how roached is it going to get? That's a, it's a very good question. I like to know as well. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I I think one of the reasons why my models have not been particularly uh, filthy is because, uh, the subjects that I have modeled have not been particularly filthy. Um, So if you look at uh, a lot of the works I built earlier, um, 48 scale uh, Super Hornet uh, belonging to VX9, or the F-14 Tomcat in 72nd scale belonging to Top Gun, those airframes did not get very dirty. So for me to restrain myself from going a little bit heavier so hence more visually appealing was was quite a challenge and that is why i think being able to work on something that would sort of open the floodgate so to speak will be refreshing of a change uh and to be completely honest i'm not too sure how i'm going to do it. i'm just going to start with what i know which is uh oils that's how I weather my models, and I'm gonna go from there. And I don't know, maybe I'll experiment with uh, pigments. Uh, maybe I'll experiment with different type of paints to weather on top. Maybe I'll do a little bit of chipping, uh, especially along the cockpit sills where you know the boots get in and chip the black paint off, and you see the metallic underneath. Uh, so it'll be it'll be a lot of fun, I think. You'll be a, a welcome distraction from the scribing I've been doing. Well, it's going to be fun for us to watch as you explore that as well, and I think it's, it's going to be cool. I, uh, you know, I, I, and I completely agree with you about the subject dictates. You know, if it's because not every aircraft is completely filthy. I mean, that's my favorite thing, but obviously they're not all that way. And I totally understand the appeal of something that's, you know, fresher, cleaner. It's uh, it's just really according to what your style is. So it's really cool to hear that you kind of have this urge that you want to explore. It's uh, it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, and I look forward to being able to do something a little different, not just in the uh, from a stylistic standpoint, but from a, a realism standpoint. Um, I, I think traditionally for myself, when I paint a model, I try to um, go a little bit beyond to make sure that the my weathering matches what's actually on the aircraft uh, when 
the time of the photo is taken. So, you know, if the uh, certain part of airframe is a little dirtier, if there's a bit of a oil streak from certain uh, ports, I would try to replicate that. Uh, for this CF-18, I'm going to allow myself the liberty of sort of uh, gathering the uh, the more interesting bits from all the F-18s I've seen and place them on a single model. So it's not going to be it's not going to be photorealistic to a certain airframe at a certain time, but it's going to be it's going to be fun for me. Yeah. And Will's over there thinking like, ha, 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 I've got him onto the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think his time in SMCG has corrupted him. It's He's going to start boring you about hairspray chipping now as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's this is phenomenal. I love hearing this because I, I mean, look, I think it's important for any any art any artist, no matter what your genre is, no matter what your medium is, to explore out of your comfort zone. And that, you know, it's just way too easy to just stay with what you're comfortable with. Like, I often think I want to build something really clean. Clean is a challenge in its own, and you know, just as uh, heavily weathered is. It is. It's it's not, I don't think it's necessarily, um, I mean, you know, you get into the easier versus harder debate, and I have my position on that, but it's a different set of skills. Um, it's a different mindset too. Yeah, like totally. To if you're used to to weathering something, to pull back and restrain your weathering, or to do something clean, it goes against your instincts. So it seems harder to do something that you're actually satisfied with. So it's it may not be the how difficult the execution is, but how difficult it is for you to be satisfied with with how you've done that model. You know. Actually, there is one I wanted to ask you about, and it's it, talking of clean ones. The uh, oh, I'm going to get the uh, the name wrong. The Japanese F104, the bare metal on that. Tell us yeah, about that because that is yeah, that yeah. is legit. It really is. I, I have know. questions. because oh. <laughs> yeah, Will's always I, like, "How do I? How do I? Uh, you know, bare metal or what have you?" And uh, and that's foil. I know that one's foil, so I have questions. That, that that was actually uh, something that I've done, uh, oh man, 15, 20 years ago. And I just was not satisfied with the metallic options back then. Uh, it's not like today where we have uh, the AK Extreme Metal, we have the uh, the new Mr. Color and the Tamiya Lacquer brands. Back then, the options were very limited. And being in Canada, what's available at my local hobby shop were, were quite... Uh, quite disappointing to be honest so i thought to myself you know i i'm not gonna build uh i build rather slow so the chance of me building another f104 after doing everything else i want to do it's gonna be a while so i'm gonna go full out on the metallic finish uh and i i i distinctively remember uh back then seeing a couple modelers online where they've tried out using bare metal foil uh, as their metallic finish of choice. So I thought to myself, you know, F-104, there's not a lot of complicated geometry to it. It's essentially a long tube. So why don't I just go for it? Uh, and next thing you know, I was uh, I was knee-deep, and I just reached a point of no return, and uh, probably uh, don't know, a few dozen uh, fresh exacted blades later, it's uh, it's 
I, I have more F104. But it, it was it was definitely challenging because being able to work with foil is a completely different mindset than working with paint. Once once a little bit of the foil tears or uh, a bit of a corner is abraded, even long after it's you know it, it's being applied, if if any part of the finish is damaged during handling, the whole piece has to come off. So even just the application and handling. Uh, is is it brings a new dimension of challenge to uh, to building that model? I could never do that. I'm such a klutz. Yeah, I just yeah, ten thumbs. <laughs> so I got to ask technical questions. Do you remember what kind of adhesive you used? Because you used kitchen foil, right? Oh, bare metal foil. So it's uh, it's got adhesive lines back. Okay. Oh, you used right. the branded bare metal foil. Okay. Yes. Which is which presents challenges all of its own because it is so much thinner than kitchen foil, and as you know, any any sort of flaw underneath is sticks out like like a sore thumb. Um, and I, you know, I don't know. I was reading some stuff in a car modeling group yesterday. Some people think that the bare metal, the quality of bare metal foil, has changed over the years, and that it's the properties of the foil are different and the adhesive is different. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I have not been able to get satisfied with the stuff. So I've turned, I've gone down the rabbit hole of trying to develop a technique using either kitchen foil, or now I'm on to um, what is sold as shim stock because it's, you know, a thousandth of an inch or not. Sorry. Uh, it's, it's uh, uh, 0.1 mils or thicker. Uh, and that's again a whole different set of, of challenges. But man, when you get when it's when it's right, there's nothing better than real aluminum. I mean, that looks like a real metal aircraft. You know, that's all yeah. you can say about it, really. Did you did you sand it, sand and polish? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a good question. So I did go over the panels with uh, the finest grid uh, steel wool that I could find. I find out when I look at pictures of actual aircraft. There's always uh, a direction to the grain. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. as I polish the surface of the metal uh, towards that direction of the grain, uh, I will get a certain characteristic look to the surface. Um, it, that also presents its own challenges because as I polish the surface, I remember uh, introducing tear out along the edges particularly. Uh, so a certain panel will have to be redone two or three times. Uh, in addition, uh, steel wool sheds quite a bit. So if any gets left on the surface, the next panel that goes on will inevitably show it <laughs> from underneath. And now you got to redo that panel as well. Uh, in addition, um, I, I still have not been able to figure out how to get over the challenge of deco films on, on metallic surfaces. And with foil, there's, there's no way you can apply any sort of finish over it that would not affect the sheen. Yep. So I, I, I have not, I have not done a, a foiled model since. However, the next time I do, I may experiment with, um, what transfers. I think that's probably going to be a solution. I think you're absolutely right. You just, you cannot tolerate any decal film and painting the markings 
is a challenge because, as you know, paint does not, as a rule, doesn't stick well to aluminum. That's why we have zinc chromate primer and aotaki and things like that. I mean, it's corrosion resistance also, but paint just as a rule does not like aluminum. And those primers have properties that give you a sort of a bridge between color coats and the surface of the aluminum. So when you're trying to spray markings, you've got that challenge, uh, but that does help you with stencils, especially in 148. It's going to save so. stencils. Yeah, <laughs> you're not going to spray them anyway, are yep. you? So. Nope, nope. I I wonder too about dry transfers. I'm going to do some custom dry transfers for my little Ming Hornet project that I'm working on, and I wonder if those might work on an aluminum skin. Uh, I, I'm going to get the chance to try with my you know, with my experiments. Well, whenever you're using the dry transfers, you have to burnish them from the back for them to transfer over. Yeah, yeah, you have to. You have so to, you could. Yeah, you might damage. Could cause, you could damage the surface. Absolutely, you could because especially like with the foils that I'm trying to use uh, for um, for that, they're soft enough that you can you can rub your fingernail across it and leave a groove. So. Could you uh, could you use like a silicone tip brush possibly to yep. burnish possibly or even again I'm just going to have to do a little bit of experimenting I'll have enough leftovers on my from my Hornet project that I'll be able to try that out but that's that's the challenge is you know there's a every single option for a metallic finish has some sort of a fatal flaw so. Okay, so John, we've been you know going on and on about model making, and that's all been good. Um, but you you know you mentioned photography, and your photography of your model making is outstanding. And I know, and I'm sure a few other guys know that that is partly at least because you also are a professional photographer and a well published and really talented aviation photographer in particular. So I, I, you know, I, I, one of my things when we got you on here was to get you to talk a little bit about that as well. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Well, we really appreciate that. So, uh, again, full disclosure, I am not a professional photographer. I'm just a hobby photographer who's, uh, fortunate enough to be approached uh, a couple of times and have my pictures, uh, in a couple of magazines, a couple, <laughs> I, I I'm an aviation photographer. Uh, that's my other hobby. Uh, been doing it for a number of years, uh, and because of that, I uh, I have the equipment to and the and the background knowledge to be able to um, take photographs of my models in a generally semi-professional setup, and have the software to be able to post process after the fact. So it's uh, it just worked out well that way. So okay, I'm always I'm always wanting to talk shop. What do you use it for post processing? Are you a Lightroom guy? I am a Lightroom guy. Been using Lightroom for a number of years now. I have not uh, switched to the subscription Lightroom, so my Lightroom is pretty dated. I think I'm on version six or version seven. I don't know what uh, <laughs> version is out there at this point. But one of these days, I will have to switch to the subscription model because I I lack the ability to do. So something as primitive as stacking. So yeah. I cannot take photos where the both end of the spectrum are sharp, for instance. And that is quite important for model photography. Uh, at, the, at, at this point, I am making you. But yeah, it's a uh, photography is something that I have enjoyed. And I also experiment with uh, quite a bit. 
I think that makes me a, a better modeler because I tend to be able to uh, zoom in on a certain portion of the model as you know, so, sort of the way that I would see uh, in a photograph and sort of understand how does the model look from an artistic standpoint, not from a you know, finished digitized photo on the screen standpoint, but what looks good under certain lighting or from certain perspective from certain distances. And even if that means that I have to tweak my approach to say weathering a model, I have to weather a little bit heavier so it brings out a certain detail or I will have to chip a certain part of the model so it brings out a bit of a scratch bill aspect of the model a little bit better. So I really think that being a photographer, a hobby photographer and a hobby model builder have sort of allowed me to achieve that symbiotic relationship where they, the two feeds off each other. I think that's absolutely true. It's both. It's it's not. I mean, it's a visual aspect of just being able to recognize stuff that looks good versus stuff that doesn't. But also, like you said, just like I always say, you know, building to photograph it, uh, because that does sometimes affect your your strategy. I know there's things that I'm doing on the weapons loadout for my Hornet where I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to worry about that because there is no camera angle where anybody's going to see that shit. But you're a, one thing I love about your aviation photography is you, and, and I and I'm 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 going to be really interested to see how this translates to your Hornet project. Is you, I mean, you know as well as I do that with aviation photography, there's like sort of a spectrum from the purely functional, where it's just a picture of an airplane taken off, and it's documentary and nothing more. And then on the other end of the spectrum is a much more artistic approach, and yours is definitely more towards that end. Like I see a lot of textures. I see a lot of color composition. I see stuff that, that I just, I can identify as somebody who looks at it from a more, uh, let's say painterly point of view, um, than just a documentary point of view. And I'm curious how you develop that style. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good observation. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that you see that in my, Photography. I think uh, it comes down to a couple aspects. First is my uh, engineering background. So I find that being a, a an engineer, I tend to zoom in on the, the mechanical details of an aircraft. Uh, for instance, uh, that uh, that would show the characteristic of an airframe, uh, how the airframe functions, how it uh, interfaces with its environment. If somebody touches the side of a panel and you see fingerprints all over it, that probably shows me that that panel is pretty important for a certain portion of the aircraft's life. Uh, if the aircraft is faded on top, that shows me that that airplane is probably lived outside for a good time of its life. So I think being able to zoom in on certain aspect of the airframe and how the airframe interacts with its environment and its people brings... Uh, a, a, a character of the subject beyond just its mechanical construct. Uh, and secondly, I think being able to see that interaction between the operator and the machine helps to tell a story. And we all love a good story. And I think as model builders, we try to tell that in the way we build a model and the way we paint a model and you know, how we display the model. So I, I think being able to tell that story by 
zooming in on a certain aspect where you're playing or to um, you know, slide the contract side a little bit uh, on, on the heavy side so that it brings forward certain aspect of the subject that we don't usually pay attention to really, really does bring a side of the subject that we don't usually see. Good stuff. Good stuff. And I agree with all of that. Absolutely. Do you, uh, do you have any advice for any of our listeners who want to improve their photography game? Yeah, use Nikon and don't use Canon. <laughs> okay, that's it. Get him out of here. Get lucky. him off the podcast. <laughs> Nikon, Nikon, Nikon. Oh, great. Am I the only Canon? Am I the only Canon guy in the room? Yep. Oh, for fuck's you sake. You are. Oh, you're killing me. You're killing me. <laughs> Here, here I thought. Okay, bring it. Jo- bring it. Oh, John awesome! Love here. it. Yep. This this bad boy. I bought this bad boy off Micro. Oh, and he just used bad boy Fucking twice. Name dropping as well. <laughs> yeah. Aren't you special? I bought this bad boy no, from a camera shop. Not at all. Oh. Whoa. <laughs> all right, now Will and your turn to use bad boy in a sentence. Uh, you're both bad boys. I'm just yeah. <laughs> bad boys. Just, just terrible. Terrible. I thought. I thought. Okay. What you gonna do? I thought. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm gonna get John on here. He's an aircraft modeler because you know I'm like the only like more aircraft modeler of of the three of us. We all build an engineer. An engineer to help balance me against these two art school guys. Uh, A photographer. I'm like, and you know, and here we go with the Nikon shit. I just can't win. Well, when you're wrong, you're wrong. Hey, well, don't forget. uh, None of us 3D print. Oh, John does. John does. I, and I, wanted, Damn it. I wanted to ask you about this because I did see some examples of 3D printing. So, yeah. Thanks for reminding me of that, Tracy, because we can't get away. <laughs> we can it. edit this out, right? Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> no uh, but before we before we go off, go off on the 3D printing thing for a second, I'm with you on Lightroom, and I, I, think, uh, I think you should upgrade. Um, I, just just to, to, to trade, you know, shop talk tips – I was like you. I resisted because it. None of the newer versions seemed like they were really doing anything that was much different or useful. Uh, but I finally did, and the subscription thing for ten bucks a month, especially with the latest release, it, they are they really stepped up. Like you've got, I don't know if you're keeping up, but they've got selective masking in the newest version of Lightroom. And I know that's not going to mean a lot to most model makers who just want to do basic photography, but for you, you know, I know you, I know you understand why that's cool, and it's super easy to use. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I being uh, once in a while, I would go on YouTube or go on some photography websites and get myself a little jealous of all the latest and greatest toys and editing software, and uh, go back to my little uh, little corner and uh, continue playing with my Lightroom Six. But one day I will definitely have to go that route because it's just you know it's it's I gotta grow with the technology I gotta learn I gotta I gotta continue to improve uh, both as a modeler and as a photographer so definitely yeah. Well, look, I know you're cheap, but just think you can use the money you've saved on buying good scribers to go get a subscription to Lightroom. <laughs> yeah, th- those those sewing needles are really really putting a dent in my wallet. I can tell you. That. <laughs> 
I love it. For, for for listeners that don't know, we have a running we have a running joke with John because he is truly old school with his scribing. And yeah, you'd never know because it's obviously beautiful work. But yeah, we can't we can't resist giving him a hard time about that. Anyway, let's talk about 3D printing for a second because that'll piss Chris off and that's always fun. Well, how much 3D printing are you doing, John? I I know you've you've, you know, you've got the CAD background to do it. Do you own a 3D printer? Yeah, I do. I I own a uh, an anaphobic uh, sorry. I love that. I love that. That's going to be its new nickname. It's, so it's, been... it's the bourbon. It's really, it's finally working its way through my system. It's a, 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 any cubic photon, the, the OG any cubic photon. Okay. So you're still on a 2K machine. It's barely a 2K machine. Yeah. It really isn't that great. Uh, I got uh an sm4k that i didn't even unpack before i sold it because i it just languished in a corner uh not used for about a year and then the ak got announced and to be completely honest i am a 72nd scale aircraft modeler at heart and always will be so i need something that will allow me to navigate that scale uh with relative uh efficiency so i am keenly looking forward to what the AK will be able to do. And I'm going to reinvest myself once uh, I know which machine I need to get. Well, that's going to be cool to see as well. And we'll just have to get you back on to talk more about that when we really have time to make Chris uncomfortable with that conversation. I am about... 3D, like John is about resin. It's like other people like it, great, but I like my scratch building, you know. That's and that's what makes the world a fun place. Is everybody likes different things, and yep, it's always fun to give each other a hard time about it. But we do have to wrap this up. We've been going on for a solid two hours, and it's been a lot of good stuff. Uh, one thing I want to make sure we do is is direct people to where they can see all of your stuff. Um, I know you recently changed the name of your Facebook page. From JC Chung Studios to Scale Scriber, uh, complete with a very cool logo that depicts the said needle. Did you design that logo yourself? Because it really is cool. This is good. Yeah, yeah, I, I did design the uh, the logo myself. I just thought that you no know, JC J Chung Studio really was meant for both my photography and scale modeling hobbies, right. and it just so happened that you no. Know, on one platform, I tend to post Instagram was all aviation photography. Facebook was all scale modeling. So it's always a good time to split. Well, mad respect. I mean, look, you, you're proving to really be a Renaissance guy because you've got engineering talents. You've got artistic talents, model making talents. And I think even you post a few things on your personal page showing some kitchen talents as well. So you, uh, you clearly, you're, you're clearly a mad scientist and, uh, for those guys that want to go see your photography over on Instagram, that's at Scriber, right? That's correct. That's my model page. Uh, on Instagram, it is still uh, JCJ Chung Studios for okay, my for aviation your, photography okay, as well. For your and, I, and I really encourage guys to go take a look at that because, I mean, even if, you know, even aside from just being beautiful, beautiful photography. And, and listen, I'm going to say this real quickly. 
professionalism, especially with photography, is a mindset. It doesn't matter if you're getting paid to do it full time. Because we both know there's a shit ton of lousy photographers out there who are making a living selling lousy photography. Um, your photography is absolutely professional. It's, it's amazing. And it's good reference material. I mean, I think model makers should go check it out for that reason alone. So get over there to J.C. Chung Studios. Um, with that, anything else, John, you want to you wanna lead us out of here with? Uh, no, not really. It's, uh, once again, I really want to thank you for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, it's really good to put uh, faces and voice to you, know, you guys. I mean, I, I've heard your podcast. I've seen your faces around, but it's, you know, it's the first time chatting with all three of you, and it's just been a blast. I really, really do thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, we appreciate you coming on. John. I just, it's been great to get to know you too. Wish we had longer, so please do come back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll, 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 hopefully, we'll get you back on here when you get that 8K machine. That's going to be cool. And with that, John, really great interview. Thanks for taking the time on a Saturday. Really appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Hey guys, Chris here with some special news from Inside the Armour. We've got a new book. And better than that, Will's in it. So what is it? The new book is called Perfect Pits. And it's a book all about how to get the most from your scale cockpits. From 172nd to 148 to 132nd. We look at five different projects from four different modellers. Including myself, Will, Jeroen Veen and Tom Annis. Telling you how to get the most out of your scale aircraft cockpits. From scratch building to aftermarket, to painting, to 3D design. The book is available for pre-order now at www.insidethearmor.com or ask your favourite hobby bookstore to stock the book for you. At 72 pages and A5, it's perfect for propping up on the bench to get the most out of it when you're working on your own cockpits. So don't forget, pre-order Perfect Pits today. And don't forget, the Sprue Cutters Union is just one of a number of superb scale modelling podcasts. There are too many to list, but go to modelpodcasts.com to find a full list of all these great shows. Okay, gangsters, hopefully you enjoyed that interview as much as we did. John proved to be the perfect guest. I know he was like freaking out later. He was like, man, I don't think I did very good, and I wish I'd said some things differently. John, you did great, man. Yeah, we loved having, we, we loved having <laughs> you on. It was super fun, and we're going to definitely have you back. Um, you know, because I think there's a lot of subjects we didn't even touch on, and I know that what we did talk about I think listeners are going to get a lot out of. I thought it was really cool, his, just his emotional connection with his models, you know, and having his family be super encouraging uh, for him as a model maker. That's, yeah, that's interesting stuff, man. It's not, that's not always the case with everybody, but he's got serious familial connection with, uh, with some of his subjects. It's, you know, it's more than just a model that he wanted to build. It's like, I'm building this for a reason, you know, like, that was cool. Yeah. 
he brings a, brings a lot of passion to the table, and and that's that's so important. Oscar, to me, just comes across as someone that does everything with passion. That he either you know does it or doesn't do it, but if he's going to do it, he, he does it with everything yeah. he's got. And uh, it's just a joy to talk to people like that, basically, because their enthusiasm is infectious. Yeah. I asked him later when we were chatting about it. Um, for those who follow the Myers Briggs personality type system i was like dude you're either an entj or an intj aren't you and he was like um maybe <laughs> i mean I, I know my type i can you know i can i can see my fellow fellow uh personality types from a mile away so that was pretty cool uh, like i said during the interview i really like his problem solving you know he takes a step away from the problem and and looks at the most efficient way to solve it. And that's not something I think all model makers do. We're all, we all problem solve in a different way, but I think for me, it encourages me to take a step back and, and look for more than one solution to the problem that I'm looking at and pick the most efficient one. He approaches problems the way I like to think I approach problems, which is that they're not a problem, they're a cool new challenge to play with. You know, it's not like, oh, God, how do I do this? It's like, oh, cool, how can I do this? All right, all right, so we got a little bit in the mailbag, right, boss? Well, there's a, there's a couple of questions that have come in, and I think, actually, they deserve looking at separately another time because we're running a bit short on time today. Okay. But I just wanted to say we've had loads of really cool feedback uh, for and about Margot from the last uh, episode yeah, and the chat we had with her. I mean, I know we talk a lot about the, the mental health angle, and that is really important. Uh, and I'm really glad that people picked that up on it. But also, people got an awful lot out of her approach to painting and her enthusiasm for uh, painting and, and colour and everything else. And it's really great to, to know that our listeners get so much out of these interviews. Yeah, I felt like it was a really just like a perfect episode because we had a lot of fun. We got deep into the technique and and there's definitely stuff to learn there, like that whole thing she was talking about with the with the uh, with the blending into the shadows and out of the highlights. I mean, that sticks with me. Yes, yeah. You know, just little things like that. But then we also, you know, you know, got deep into the to the more human side of things. And so, for me, I think you know all of our episodes have been great. All of our guests have been great. Uh, but that one's that one was a real standout. Yeah, she's so super confident about. And her capabilities, you know, like when she was talking about her painting, it was just like, boom, boom, boom. It's, there wasn't a lot of like, well, you could do it this way or you could do it that way. She's like, this is the way I do it. This, this, this. And <laughs> it, it could have been the language barrier, but I felt like she was very direct. And whenever she opened up uh, emotionally, she was also very direct. Um, so that was super refreshing. And it's not always the case. And, you know, it's not always wrong to, to maybe be a little reluctant to talk about yourself like that. Uh, I understand that it's something that some people, you need it drawn out of you. But I, I think that people who feel like they can't talk about it can listen to her talk about it so directly and think, oh, yeah, okay, maybe I can just like lay it on the table pretty easily. Maybe it's not... You know, pe people are going to be more receptive than you think, and I think her uh, her directness kind of showed that. 
Absolutely. And I, I just felt like, I just felt like that it would go the other way too, because again, I, I know, and I'm, you know, I, I know I made sort of light of this about being her or being the cool grandma, but you know, and I hope that doesn't make her feel, feel a certain type of way, but I, she just seemed like the kind of lady where you go over to her house and you're upset and frustrated and she's going to make you a cup of hot chocolate and serve up a plate of cookies and you're going to leave feeling way better. I just, she just made me feel warm inside. And, and, uh, I, I don't want to make you feel bad, Will, but I think me and Tracy are just looking forward to, to, uh, maybe, uh, hanging out with her at uh, World Expo yeah. as well. Yeah, I know. We've talked about it and I, I've, I really have given it some serious consideration. But, you know, for me, that is a, that is a 14 hour travel day and probably 5,000 bucks. And I'm just not sure I'm going to sign up for that this year. I, you know, I want yeah. to. I really did think about it hard because I would love to do that. But, uh, yeah. You know. Anyway, so, all right. So we're going to save the letters for next time. Is that right? Yep. I did just want to say if there's anyone people want us to interview. Yeah, let us know. Give us ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. And who do we we have a good one coming up next time, correct? Who's yep. that going to be? Well, I'll I'll be leading the next one and I've reached out to uh armor and aircraft guru Harvey Lowe uh out of Canada. Nice. Scratch boat drink. <laughs> he man that that guy he looks at those unbuildable kits that everybody else is like, I wouldn't, you couldn't pay me to build this thing. And Harvey cracks his knuckles and three days later he's posting progress shots. And then, you know, in, in two months he's taken the worst model ever made and, and built a gem out of it. And you're just like, you know, I kind of fucking hate the guy, but I kind of love him too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And does, a, does amazing work. He's got really good creative vision. Um, so we'll be picking his brain yeah. about that. That's going to be fun. But with that, that's another episode of the Sprue Cutters Union in the bag. Say good night, Gracie. <laughs> <laughs> good night, Gracie. Au revoir, messieurs et mesdames. <laughs> Adios, bitches. Auf Wiedersehen. I'm a lacquer boy, cause I don't paint it like a toy. I know how to run and I know how to get it. I don't wanna be an acrylic bitch, cause I know my paint chemistry. MLT for the UK, I get it from my local model shop. I mix it right and I spray it light. But I don't want to see no fucking ghost scenes. Because I know my paint chemistry. Know what I mean? Paint chemistry. I ain't it. <laughs>